Summer driving is here, and so are the red-hot deals on the best tire brands at Dobbs. Money saver June deals on new sets of Goodyear, Cooper, Continental, Michelin, and Pirelli tires. Click on GoToDobbs.com to find your next set of tires today. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Second and goal, it's Burden out of the backfield. Luther Burden toward the end zone for a touchdown. Oh, how about the freshman, Luther Burden? Welcome to Como. One he caught. I mean, he made three guys miss. They were on the headsets talking to me about, hey, he's going to get tackled. What's our third down call? And I was like, I don't know. And he uh, made him score, so that's pretty good. And then the Wildcat was a nice little addition just to make sure he got some touches. But we've been seeing that all fall. Burden in the Wildcat. Burden up the middle for his second touchdown tonight. Luther Burden. Big win for the Tigers last night alongside Brooke Grimsley of KMOV. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. 52-24 was the final score. 14 of those points for Louisiana Tech came in the final quarter of that game. Let's start with Luther Burden, though, because, of course, that's the local storyline. The five-star kid out of East St. Louis goes to Mizzou and... Man, I got to be honest with you. I was excited to see what he would look like. That exceeded all of my wildest expectations. Well, I think it did for the BK because, you know, the thing is, is everybody sees five-star recruit coming in out of East St. Louis. And I had the pleasure of seeing Luther Burden over at East St. Louis. And I mean, he would make ridiculous plays. And I think that that was, you know, the kind of thing that everybody was looking at coming into this is like, okay, high school is one thing, but once you get to the college football level, especially when you're playing in the SEC, how exactly does that transfer over? Luther Burden, I mean, his footwork was impeccable last night I mean he made plays and I know you look at some of his stats at the end there you know put together two catches for 25 yards and also had three carries for 17 yards that doesn't seem like super splashy but if you saw those plays last night which I know that you tweeted out BK he was so electric every time that he touched the ball and you want more of that and even coach drink saying last night he was like look I see this in practice every (laughs) single day I just didn't want to hype it up a little too much you know I, he was awesome last night. To your point, he exceeded all expectations. And to Brooks' point, you saw the footwork on that touchdown, a little uh, screen pass out there. But I know it's, I think it's listed as a rushing touchdown. I think Drink said that post game. It was a reception touchdown. But to dance around four defenders, and I get it, it's Louisiana Tech, but still, you saw the athleticism. And I like the way that they utilized him in the offense. That was the thing I was curious to see. How are they going to use Luther Burden in the offense? And honestly, I don't even think they showed you everything because I think they're hiding stuff for Kansas State and everybody else on the SEC schedule. But 
man, he's unbelievable. Like, I know I, I'm not a Mizzou fan. I'm going to watch Mizzou because of Luther Burden. Just watching his athleticism, he lived up to everything and exceeded that expectation. He was incredible to watch last night. So I think sometimes what we do with these guys is unfair, right? We see them in high school and we make them into these top five recruits. And it's like, hey, he's going to be the next blank. And no, the, like he might not. And if he's not the next so-and-so and for Luther Burden, the guy that I always heard from people that covered Mizzou that saw him out here in high school a lot was Jeremy Macklin. He looks like the next Jeremy Macklin. Watching him last night, like, go with whatever you want to. I don't care. He's good with it. Like, he's he's going to live up to whatever the expectation is that you put upon him. I, I watched the DGB experience up close in person. I was at Mizzou at the time. Doriel Greenbeckham, when he got to Mizzou, didn't know how to play football. Mm-hmm. Now, he was an unbelievable athlete. The only thing he could do his freshman year was run fast down the field. That was it. That was his entire offense. Like that. That's the way that they utilized him. Just go. Just go. And hopefully you can jump off and he was catch a the freak football. Athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time that you got to the Tennessee game, he broke out and we all saw what happened after that. And then, of course, things went sideways. But. Doriel Greenbeckham was a freak athlete that needed to learn how to play football, that needed to learn the instincts of the game at that level. Mm -hmm. Luther Burden is a football player that happens to be a tremendous athlete. The competitiveness that we saw on that first touchdown, whoo, buddy. When people talk about, hey, the Des Bryant comparisons, the fire, that's what they're talking about. There was also a play, and it probably goes under the radar because it wasn't a huge gain. It was like a 15-yard gain. But there was an out route that he ran where Brady Cook doesn't have enough mustard on it, which was a problem later when he threw it too hard and then Burden drops it and ends up in an interception. But on this one, it's an out route. Cook doesn't put a lot on it. And this is an interception every time, except for when he threw it to Luther Burden on this pass. Burden attacks the football, comes back to it. It's it's textbook tape. Like you would teach this to your kids on how do you come back to the football to help out your quarterback. Luther Burden last night, lived up to every expectation. And Gabe DeArmond, who has been covering the team for 20 plus years now, tweeted this out earlier today. He had former Mizzou players text him last night saying Luther Burden is the next Jeremy Macklin. Somebody quote tweeted that saying he's actually better. And Gabe said that was also said to me in texts from former Mizzou players. I don't know what the future for Luther Burden looks like at Mizzou. I know it's pretty damn dynamic, though. And if you're not a Mizzou fan, you should be watching Mizzou games over the next three years to get a glimpse of what this guy's going to be able to do. Well, even I heard the constant comparisons and you brought it up with Doriel Green Beckham. Of course, everybody liked what they saw with Doriel Green Beckham. He was a freak athlete. But I feel like I tweeted this out, too, last night. I don't feel like it's even fair to compare the two. They're so different. Because, yes, of course, Luther Burden is a freak athlete as well. We are all fully aware of that. He's not a five-star recruit for nothing. But at the same time, the little bit that we saw from Drinkwitz playbook, he is able to handle a lot. I mean, just the little bit. And as you mentioned, this is not even fully what we're going to see. I mean, they're going to hold some of this back. But the fact that he was able to handle this, I think even puts him a little bit further than Doriel Green Beckham. Because as a Titans fan, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, the, the pain that we went through with DGB in Tennessee, we definitely learned quickly that, uh, yeah, he was elite and he was talented. But sometimes 
the playbook and understanding it wasn't exactly there. And you said this in the office, BK. It's not like Louisiana Tech had just an awful secondary. They have a pretty good secondary on that team at Louisiana Tech. They had two Tech. corners that tra- uh, transferred in this year that are Played pretty well really, last night. really good players. So seeing him do that against those guys is a good sign. And I get it. That's not SEC caliber play. And uh, it's going to be different when you get to facing Georgia and teams like that. But it's a good sign to see how he goes up in his first game. You know, there's we hear a lot of athletes like Jack Flaherty when he came back from injury said, I, you know, I was amped up for my first start at home. And I didn't really see nerves from Luther Byrne. He just looked like he belonged there on the football field with those guys at Mizzou and going up against a decent secondary. It'll be exciting to see because the first test comes next week against Kansas State. And then when they get in the SEC play, it's going to be really exciting to watch how he does there. And that's why I'm excited about next week and why I'm so thrilled that they have like a legitimate opponent early in the schedules because we're going to find out what they have available for Luther Byrne in the playbook. You mentioned, Tanner, that this is just a portion of it. There's going to be more. And they were close on a couple of deep balls last night. I think he threw them three or four last night. They weren't able to connect on any of them. And if you didn't watch the game, you probably look at the stat sheet this morning and say to yourself, what the hell are these people talking about? Three receptions, 17 yards, ended up finishing the day with three carries for 25 yards. That does not jump off the stat sheet. If you watched the game, those were, every single touch was electric. It was. Like, and, and a lot of them came at or near the goal line. And I think that's a big part of their offense right now is they know when you get close, this is a guy that's going to punch it in for you. He is, he is special. And everything that you've heard about him, he lived up to all of that hype and then some last night. And maybe I'm just being like a little greedy here, but because watching him at East St. Louis, and if you, I just employ everybody to go on YouTube, look at some of his highlights from his high school days. I want to see him on the punt return. I'm shocked I just, they don't I, have him out there. It's maybe, weird to me. Yeah, maybe they're just holding back, as we mentioned, just kind of getting him adjusted to all of that. But man. He was, he's electric. If you just look back at some of his high school highlights from that, he really shines. There are in some that, that think he's the best punt returner in the history of St. Louis. Yeah. And for him to not be on the punt return unit is, is weird to me. Now, I, Chris Abrams train is fine in that role, but it, against K-State, I've got to imagine he's going to be the one that's returning. Has punts, to be. Or at least splitting time at a minimum. That wasn't the only storyline from last night. The defense also looked good. Like I, I, I'm hesitant oh, man, here. It's Louisiana Tech. Exactly. It, it looked, I mean, compared to last season, come on, it's a huge upgrade. A huge upgrade, right? Here's Eli Drinkwitz after the game talking about his improved defense and what Blake Baker, the new defense coordinator, was able to do with that unit. What a difference a, a year makes, you know, to hold the team like that. I think 11 yards rushing was pretty impressive. Uh, three turnovers forced in the first half. Uh, a defensive touchdown. You know, can't say enough about the effort that those guys had. Blake Baker did, did an unbelievable job. They were awesome last night. Tyron Hopper is the best football player on this team, not named Luther Burden. He was everywhere, finished with a sack, two tackles for loss, an interception. Felt like he had a pass breakup in there as well. Tyron Hopper looked every bit the part of an NFL linebacker and clearly is the best linebacker this team's had since Nick Bolton left campus. But it wasn't just him. You look at some of the transfers that they were able to bring in. Joseph Charleston finished with one interception, but had another that ended up being called back because of the... uh, Um, I think it was the roughing the passer call on that one. You have a couple of interior defensive linemen that made an impact last night that are transfers as well. On the outside, Drayden Norwood ended up making an an impact. He was a Texas A&M transfer. They have a lot of guys that are new to the system and you never know how that's going to go. It could go really well or those guys might not mesh and then it takes a while for it to come together. Again, disclaimer, it's Louisiana Tech. They are going to get a much bigger test next week against Kansas State. 
but they ended up allowing a total of 11 yards on 22 carries. And last year, they had times where they allowed 11 yards per carry. This was a significant upgrade from what we saw from the Mizzou defense last year. Well, and exactly. And I know that we keep having to say, look, this is Louisiana Tech. We're fully aware of that. To Mizzou's credit, this is the first time that they have ever played against them. So they didn't know exactly what all that they would be going into there. So I feel like that first quarter made me a little nervous, but still they were trying to figure them out. Their adjustments was huge to me, especially defensively as well. I think any any improvement from last season is huge. The defensive line, I mean, stood out huge to me. The fact that they were able to even like break up that pass to get that pick six, mm-hmm. which led to that score, that was huge. They were aggressive. They were a threat. And that's honestly a credit, too, to Eli Drinkwitz and their staff that they're able to really utilize the transfer portal in that way and find that talent and have them impact that quickly. That helps you recruit later on, too. Did anything that you saw last night change the way that you viewed the season? Because I thought they would go six and six, maybe in a best case scenario, seven and five coming into last night. I don't know where you were at prior, Brooke, but do you still feel that way today or did last night change things for you? I I think that maybe it changed in a way of Luther Burton. I mean, as long as you get him the ball as much as possible, then everything is great and fantastic. I do think I I, realistically that middle of their schedule still scares the crap out of me. I think it's still a win. I don't know if we should judge them off their record by the end of the season, but if they're able to do be a little bit more competitive in the in these SEC games, considering how tough that middle of that schedule is, I feel like that would be a win, a big takeaway. So at least from last night, I say, yes, I feel like they can be closer and be more competitive in these games. And even as we mentioned, it is Louisiana Tech, but still they blew them out. It wasn't close. That's they a huge covered. improvement. Good teams win. Great <laughs> yes. teams cover. They covered I've last heard night. That before. <laughs> I can't believe they did it. I thought that they would end up winning by twenty or fewer points, but they found a way. Yeah, I I'm still gonna stick with where I thought they'd be about six and six, seven and six like you. I I just don't take too much away from that. I don't want to jump on board completely and say, oh, yeah, they're going to exceed expectations after beating Louisiana Tech. They beat Kansas State on the road. Yeah, then then we'll have a different conversation. And I might be saying, okay, maybe they can get to that eight-win threshold. Maybe they definitely get to seven. But for now, I'm still going to stick with what I originally thought, six and six, seven and six. Next week's when I change my opinion on you. If you're able to go into K-State and you win that game and you took – honestly, I don't care how you do it. You win by one, you win by 20, it will change my opinion on this team. Kansas State's a legitimately good football team. You go in there and you find a way to beat them. All right, now we can talk about the ceiling being higher than what I anticipated going into the season. Beating Louisiana Tech is what you should do. Now, if you're a Mizzou fan today, you should also feel good about this. Your team did exactly what it was supposed to last night. On pace for 12 wins. Credit where it is due. (laughs) All you can do is beat the team that's out there in front of you. And they did that. And they beat them handily. By the way, Brady Cook, native St. Louisan, I've seen a lot of criticism of him on the social media sites and I thought Brady Cook was pretty darn good last night. He was night. solid, I, I thought. Yeah. He brought a new element to the offense that they sorely lacked last year with Connor Bazelak, where he just could not move. His knees didn't work any longer. Brady Cook had multiple plays where he was able to scramble, extend the play, and then found somebody downfield or made a play himself with his legs. So credit where it's due to him. They did what they were supposed to last night, and I will give them full kudos for that. 
And now we see the real test next Saturday night when they take on K-State in Manhattan, Kansas. Alongside Brooke Grimsley and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Appreciate you guys tuning in today. We're with you until 2 o'clock. Coming up in about 15 minutes, our guy Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, will join the show. But coming up next, this order of the Cardinals rotation over the next four days, it looks eerily familiar to what we could see going into the playoffs. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I'm also a, a big believer in dance with the people that have brought you there until he proves to the training staff and the team that he deserves to be handed this ball over whoever. I mean, Jordan Montgomery's on a heater right now. I could argue he could be, you know, start for anybody. That was Mark DeRosa of MLB Network a couple of weeks ago talking about what we can expect from the Cardinals rotation moving forward. And if he would put Jack Flaherty into the mix alongside Brooke Grimsley of KMOV, that's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. The Cardinals rotation over the next four days is interesting to me. You've got Jordan Montgomery tonight. Adam Wainwright tomorrow, Miles Michaelis on Sunday, and then the expectation is you'll have Jack Flaherty rejoining the rotation coming up on Monday afternoon against the Washington Nationals, making his uh, late season debut, I guess if you want to call it that, with the Cardinals. Brooke, I think you can make a pretty strong case. These are the four starters that are battling right now for those three games in the wild card round. Over the next month, what do you want to see from them to determine who's actually going to get those starts? What's going to determine that for you? I think it really just depends on how things go with Jack Flaherty, right? That's what everybody's waiting for. I mean, it seems like everything has gone well in these rehab assignments, has gone to plan. I like the way that they kind of took their time with these rehab assignments. You have nothing to lose bringing him in Monday. I mean, right now, the Cardinals are way ahead of the Brewers. You have that nice, comfortable lead right now. So why not bring him in to see if he is that guy, if he is the Jack Flaherty of 2019 that we keep seeing <laughs> all over social media with the these rehab reports, right? If he actually is that guy. And then I say that is your rotation right there. Cause Dakota Hudson, we all know has been struggling. He he's not who you need him to be in the starting rotation. He's going to cost you games down the stretch. You can't have that Jack Flaherty. If he can get back to that 2019 form that we keep talking about and hoping for, then that is your guy right now. Yeah, that, that's where I am, too. If, if Flaherty gets back to himself, he's a wild card game starter for me, mm-hmm. at least in one of those three games. And then uh, and then I'll figure out the other uh, three from there. And I think it just depends on who pitches best in September. I, Montgomery's got a shot because of the way he's pitched. Michaelis has had his struggles, but to me it's only been in a handful of games like the Cincinnati's uh, in Cincinnati and in Colorado. And then I think if Michaelis is the guy that ends up getting left out, I understand it because I think Flaherty has the highest upside of everybody in that rotation. Adam Wainwright, I think, is a lock. I think he's the only guy that's locked in right now in that wild card round because he's been your ace this season. And then it comes down to, do I want Michaelis or Montgomery? And then if Fla- and, and Flaherty. And I, I think if Flaherty's healthy and right, which he looks to be in, in Memphis, or excuse me, in his last start in Springfield, then he makes that playoff rotation. And then I think I would still lean towards Michaelis because he got you here. But I can see the Cardinals going with Montgomery because of what we've talked about, how left-handers, they like seeing them pitch in at Bush Stadium because they like seeing right-handed batters at Bush because they, the stadium does not play well for them. I don't know if you guys felt this way, 
But when I saw what Spencer Strider did last night for the Atlanta Braves, where he finished with 16 strikeouts and zero walks in the game, by the way, he's the fourth rookie in Major League history to accomplish that feat. John Gray, Kerry Wood, Dwight Gooden, pretty good names on that list are the other three that have done it in MLB history prior. I thought to myself, okay, now I can understand why they would be pushing for Jack Flaherty to potentially be a part of their wild card round rotation. Like that's that's something that very few pitchers are capable of. I understand that, but Jack Flaherty could do something approaching that. Like it should not be a shock to anybody if we get to the playoffs and Jack has like a six inning, 11 strikeout performance. That's in his range of outcomes. I don't think that's in the range of outcomes of Miles Michaelis. Like, I just don't think that's the type of pitcher that he is capable of being. And that doesn't mean he's bad, but there are just different ways that you can win. And it makes it easier for your team if you're missing bats consistently. And Jack Flaherty at his best can do that. Montgomery at his best can do that. We've seen that for him since he came over to the Cardinals. And I think Adam Wainwright, as you mentioned, is locked into that playoff rotation. So for me down the stretch... The three guys that are battling for two other spots in your wild card round rotation are Montgomery, Michaelis, and Flaherty. And if all of them play up to their full potential, I think the two guys that I would lean towards are Montgomery and Flaherty in that wild card round. And that's it's crazy because Michaelis has been awesome for you all season long. But I think that just shows you what you need going into the playoffs of these two guys have more swing and miss stuff. And that's what you're going to have to lean towards, just like the Braves are with a guy like Spencer Strider. Well, you you know, they got those missing pieces that they were talking about at the All-Star break. You have Jordan Montgomery coming in. Also, Jose Quintana has been really solid. I know that he's had some struggles in some recent starts, but still really solid as well. Now your last missing piece to get you to October is Jack Flaherty because you need that guy. You see what happened, as you mentioned there with Strider last night. It's like, man, you need that. You need that going into the postseason for the Cardinals. That is that last missing piece that they need to put them over top of the other teams. And you, we talk about all the time offensively, you need that slug baby slug. That's what you need. Uh, I looked at it yesterday. I think it was four of the last five World Series champions have been top five in slugging percentage, and all five have been top ten, and that's in the last five. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would bet swing and miss stuff looking at strikeouts. I bet rotations. I bet a lot of the teams that have won the World Series in the last five, ten years have had a lot of that swing and miss stuff, probably more particularly the last five years because that's when baseball's really moved towards this three true outcome scenario. And the Cardinals, and Ollie's talked about, they don't really have that. Montgomery's got a little bit of it, not a lot, but he's got some of it. Flaherty's the guy that has it. And I know a lot of people on the text line, I'm not even going to look to my left and look at it, but I know a lot of people <laughs> oh, on the text line. Looked. Yeah, I, I know the text line is going to say putting something. putting Jack Flaherty in yeah. the wild card rotation <laughs> is crazy. This is the worst take that I've ever heard. You've got to be kidding me. Dude hasn't even pitched in a major league game Gave yet. Gave up three runs Slow to the double-A team. When was the last time that Jack Flaherty was actually good? Jack over Wayno. if we play at home, no way. For what it's worth, none of us suggested that that would end up being the way that this would work out. It was Jack over Michaelis as the possibility here. Uh, listen, like, I understand all of the these concerns. Like, yeah, Jack Flaherty has not been very good this year. Why? Because he's been hurt. Yeah. If Jack Flaherty is healthy, though, he's a different dude than what you have available best, to you right he's now. He's the best pitcher on this staff if he's healthy, in my opinion. I think, that, I think that sometimes we forget, too, how crazy that lockout was and how much that has affected pitchers across the league in general. Because, for one, you had that weird... 2020 COVID season, you have a lockout going on as well. For pitchers, everything is very, they're very system oriented. They have a very strict routine and that's important because that matters to the health of their arm. It's not, there's a reason why they need
need certain rest days. There's so much that goes into it mechanically. And when you didn't have the lockout, players were not able to use any of the Cardinals resources, any of their club's resources. So yeah, it's harder to pick up on what a player really needs or if there's an injury there that could have been prevented beforehand. So I think you do have to cut players slack like Flaherty in that situation. Of course, he has a ton of money to surround himself with a lot of great resources, but at the same time, it's not the same as having access to your club. It's just not. Yeah, no, it's totally different. And he got hurt. Like, Pitchers break. This happens. We've seen Clay Kershaw get hurt this year. Especially when uh, they throw as hard as they do. For as long as they have, you're seeing more and more. I mean, Tommy John surgery is just kind of coming the norm now, yeah. right? It's a rite of passage, right? You, you come in, <laughs> you're very good early on. You end up having three years of success. You get your Tommy John. Now you're coming back two years later and you're good again. Like that's that's the way that this works now with Major League Baseball starters. And that's fine. Like th- th- that's all right. The problem for Jack is. I think people would be much more understanding, like with Dakota Hudson and some of his struggles. I do think there are some people that are more understanding of that because of the Tommy John than with Jack, where there hasn't been a surgery. It's just consistent issues where it was the lat, it was the shoulder, it's the labrum, it's a bunch of different things. And that's less tangible for fans to be able to grasp. So I I get it. I understand why there are considerations for other guys. But Jack Flaherty's ceiling is just so much higher where you have to. That that's a guy you need in your playoff rotation if he ends up being himself again. 65780 is the air comfort service text line. Ask us anything coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, joins the show. The Blues quietly made a signing yesterday. I don't really know what to make of it. We'll ask Chris Kerber what he made of it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. of KMOV. I'm Brandon Kiley going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber, as he does each and every week here on the show. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing this morning? Guys, I'm doing well. I decided to take my bike out and ride the Katy Trail for a bit. And then I got brave and said, okay, I'll go a little further. I got braver and said, I'll go a little further. So now I'm on my way back and the way back seems a lot longer than the way I was going. How far did you go, Curbs? Well, I started at the Prime Outlets there in the valley and drove, rode the Katy Trail all the way down to Augusta. So, Strav was telling me it was about 16 miles out there. Uh, so, I'm in the process of a 16-mile trek back. Curbs, I think the winery's probably open here pretty soon. Just stay out there for a little while. Well, yeah. So, there's that uh, is it Good Day Brewery or something. There, there's one in Augusta, and there's one just about halfway through it was closed on my way down but i'm pretty sure it's going to be open on my way back so i might just have to destroy the work i did with uh, some suds play for the tie you'll be good yeah oh yeah well i, I earned it that's the way i look at it hey curves i did want to ask you there there was like actual hockey news kind of yesterday for the st louis blues they ended up making a signing uh tyler pitlick is their newest addition to the team he's going to be here on a pto uh, what did you make of the signing, and do you expect him to work into a potential role here with the St. Louis Blues? Yeah, I, I don't make a lot of it just because this is really something that Doug Armstrong has done, I think, a decent amount over the years. Number one, Doug likes to play anywhere from seven to eight or nine preseason games. And in those preseason games, you have to dress 
a certain number of players that have a certain amount of NHL experience. So having more veterans to be able to work in those games allows you to not have to play your regulars quite as much on a busy preseason schedule. The second part of it is you just never know what kind of injuries are there. And as they try to define what this fourth line could look like, uh, get some definition to it, maybe find an identity for it so much earlier than they did a season ago. Could he be play on it? Possibly. Does he put pressure on some of the young guys that might think, hey, I've automatically got a spot on this team? That's possible. But we've seen whether it be with Mike Hoffman or some other players, sometimes when you bring these guys on a PTO, you end up signing them, and then things end up working out pretty doggone well. So a lot's going to remain on what Tyler Pitlick can do, but it also remains uh, to be seen whether or not these young guys give Pitlick a chance to actually impress this team. Curbs, I'm surprised that you're not out on a golf course today. That was yesterday. Sorry. <laughs> First, I have to ask you, one, how did you do out in Belle Reve? I know I saw you, what was that, a few weeks ago out there for the announcement for the BMW Championship that is coming to St. Louis in 2026. How did you finish that day out at Belle Reve? And two, I saw that Craig Berube and Ryan O'Reilly are going to be participating in the Legends Charity Classic, if I could talk, Charity Classic over at the Ascension Charity Classic uh, next weekend. Can you just tell people actually how good of a golfer Craig Berube is? Because he's surprisingly good. I got to see him a little bit last year. Yeah, he, he is a good golfer. And uh, no shock to anybody, he's a competitive son of a gun. So, <laughs> he, uh, you know, one of the things characteristically about Craig Berube that I've really liked is he's one of these coaches that has found a way to be able to get away from the game. That doesn't mean he doesn't work as hard as others. It doesn't mean that he's not prepared. It just, it just means that he's found a way to find a good mental balance. And whether it be taking a break, taking a day off, going out on the golf course, whatever that might be, uh, it's refreshing. And so he likes to get out. He likes to get away. And, and he is a darn good golfer. I know he had a chance, I think, to play with Jack Nicklaus. Was it last year? Um, so uh, this year, to have Ryan O'Reilly join him, I think, is, is really special. And to have the Blues play a, a part in, in part of what's become that great event, I, I think it's fantastic. As far as me, I, I'm not a very good golfer. I, uh, well, I shot an 86 that day. I, I will, I will be honest. I shot an 86 at Bell Reeve that day. I had, I had a good day that day, but, um, let's just say we had a good caddy that helped me find some balls and give me yardage. That made a big difference. Curbs, you could have said anything. You could have said that you were fantastic. We would have no idea. You could have lied. Yeah, I could. Well, you know what? Every now and then that uh, Beverly Hills cop, you know, hey, the super cop story was working thing uh, it goes through. But uh, anybody that's seen me out there knows that I can sometimes look decent. And then other times I can just absolutely just, uh, you know, I, I could make Happy Gilmore on the putt-putt course look like a pro. So uh, <laughs> now I will tell you this. And, and one of those days, like one of those days, I was absolutely awful. Much to the chagrin of my teammates was this past Monday, uh, Colton Pareko had his charity golf tournament out at Meadowbrook. Uh, I played with Mike Caruso, Randy Gershon, Dennis Hennessy, and I was absolutely no help to those guys. But uh, what? And listen, guys, what an amazing event. So Cold Pareko started Project 55. You know, and he's going to be here a while. He's got the beginning of that eight-year contract now, and he's under contract to the Blues for 2930. The, the, the auction, it only had about six or seven items in it. But the people that were there were so charitable and so amazing. And uh, he had Layla speak, and then he had he had another young man named Hunter Hildebrand speak. And and Colton, and, and he had uh, cardiac thoracic surgery. Hunter did, and he came to meet Colton uh, at a hockey game, got to know him. Well, he wanted to pay Colton back 
for his generosity of just letting him meet him at the game. This kid did his own fundraiser, and at this golf tournament, presented Colton with a check for twenty nine hundred dollars of money that he had raised to give back to Colton. Well, the the, the people there bought into Colton and, and and believe in what Colton does and and just the quality human he is so much. That auction raised over a hundred thousand dollars that night, and that's going to go to the Ronald McDonald House of St. Louis, St. Louis Children's Hospital. And blues for kids. I mean, it, it was it was an absolutely amazing event that Colton put on. Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues, joining us for another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Kerbs, I did want to ask you, we, we mentioned the signing that the blues made yesterday. There's still a surprising number of solid players that are available on the free agent market. You look at Zach Aston Reese, Sonny Milano, uh, Evan Rodriguez, for example, just to name a few. Is this different in your mind than what we see in a typical year? Or do you think that this is more of the same? If, if not, what do you think's changed this offseason? Yeah, you know, I think it's become more of the norm, Brandon. And, and if you allow me to put a little history to this, you go back to the 0405 lockout. And one of the arguments that the NHL Players Association made against the salary cap era is something that has really, really come quite true. And that is that one, you'll start to have a difference between the have and a have nots with salary. We've seen that with teams like Toronto. You know, or, you know, even the Dallas Stars that have a, like two players taking up a quarter of their salary cap. But the other thing you're seeing is it ends veteran careers earlier. You know, Barrett Jackman is one that comes to mind. Barrett Jackman is a guy that I, I think still, still could have played hockey, you know, but he has to say, hey, do I do this for the league minimum? Because that's all the teams are hanging on to, right? Um, and, and you're seeing this more and more where veteran players, Mike Hoffman is a great example. Now, he's turned that back into a, a, a good contract for him. But even he had to sign for a million dollars. And this was a guy that, you know, has shown that he could score 30 goals in the league. So what happens is teams get their teams pretty much set. They allocate their salary cap money. And then there are those guys, whether it's because of their own play, questions teams have about them, or maybe even their own agents screwed up by misrepresenting what their actual value could be. And they've maybe turned down some deals. But those guys now have to wait and see if there's injuries and other things that come up. And then they end up coming in and signing for a league minimum for a year. And that is becoming more of the norm. And it was something the Players Association back in 2004, 2005 was concerned about. With Zach Aston Reese in particular, Curbs, if he ends up having to settle for one of those one-year veteran minimum types of deals and then hopefully reset the market going into next year, is he somebody that you think could make some sense for the Blues as another fourth-line player for them? Yeah, I, I, oh yeah, I, I actually think he can, especially with the experience and, and the players that he played with, you know, coming up in the NHL in Pittsburgh. The, the only challenge, really, Brandon, though, is when you start to do that, who are you taking the ice time away from, you know? And and right now, and you're going to eventually, you know, you've got to figure out is Clint Costin a third line or fourth line, or is he going to be on your team? He's on a one-way contract. You know, where does Logan Brown fit into this? If you're going to continue, and you've got to get some guys signed now. Obviously, I know you've got Jordan Cairo in the last year of his deal, and you've got Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko. If you're going to get some of those guys signed, you're going to have to fill in with some of those younger guys that have some cost control. So you have to you have to balance. Hey, can Zach Aston Reese help your team? Which probably is yes, but does helping your team that much is it that much difference than giving one of those younger guys a chance to fill in and grow because you've got some higher end skill up front? That's one of the challenges Doug Armstrong has to do when he puts the pieces of his puzzle together. Curbs, it seems like the narrative this offseason has really changed. You know, 
on social media, you always see beforehand people are saying, and Doug Armstrong, we trust, and Army, we trust. And then after everything happened with David Perron, you're kind of seeing the fandom turn a little bit where people are questioning some of Armstrong's moves, and especially with Perron being a fan favorite. What do you think going into the season? Do you still say to people, hey, just give Armstrong some time. There's a plan behind all of this. Well, I, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes it's pretty black and white and you just have to look at the math. You know, right now you've got, what, according to Cap Friendly, maybe 750000 I forget what the cap space is the Blues have right now, but it, it's not a lot. And, and it sure isn't another another $3 million, you know, that the Blues would, would be able to use to sign David Perron to a $4 million contract. Um you know, they had to make the tough decision with T.J. Oshie. That's one I'd still like to think you come back and, and, and you'd redo. You know, but it was because of that they were able to extend Vladimir Tarasenko and eventually Jaden Schwartz. And, of course, those guys anchored a tough championship. So they're hard decisions. Some of them work out. Some of them don't. If you would sign David Perron, you've got to do something like wave a Marco Scandella. And maybe people say, hey, that's fine. Okay, but then, you know, how are you going to fill in when you know all of last season that, Defensive depth was really your issue, not forward scoring. So it's never an easy one, but I do think for the most part, and actually this is proven, Doug Armstrong has kept this franchise in a winning mode. He's given fans an exciting product. They've been competitive every single year. And when you look at that, I think Doug Armstrong has earned the benefit of the doubt. Hey, Curbs, we appreciate the time, man. Enjoy yourself out there on the Katy Trail. Hopefully you're able to get yourself to a winery or a brewery at some point later on today. And we'll talk with you again next week, man. I got to get a padded seat for this bike if I'm going to make these kind of crazy decisions midstream. That's what I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I, I have one for my Peloton. You got to get one for your actual bike, Herbs. Come on, man. Oh, bro. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Well, I'm still, you know, it's my, it's the same bike I, I had when I was in college. So it's still a really good bike. I like it, but I, I got to get, I got to get a new seat. This sounds good. Curbs, we yeah. appreciate it, man. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk with you soon. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. Have a great weekend. You got it. That's Chris Kerber joining us here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 15 minutes, what does the rest of this season mean for the Cardinals outfield next year? Can Lars Newbar lock down a spot for himself out there? We'll talk about that coming up at noon. Ask us anything. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Grimsley and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line for Ask Us Anything Sports or otherwise. Uh, let's start with this one from the six three six guys. The <laughs> balloon party said earlier today that Jackson is St. Louis's number one eligible bachelor. Does that make T Bone number two? Tanner, what's your response? I can't believe anybody would put Jackson at number one. Oh, what? I think that's a fair assessment. If anybody's going to be number one, it's T-Bone. Number two. You got to get on Tinder first. If you're not even on Tinder, then you can't be. Are you not on any dating app? No. no. Why? No. I don't know. We need to get you on Christian. That's where I I I met my fiance. All right. I I met my fiance on Hinge. See, there you go. Yeah. Hinge success story. Uh, But Jackson's still not number one. 
No dating sites for me, Jackson cannot be number one. Well, unless you get on the dating sites, you you cannot be considered number I, no, one. No, I'll, I'll name anybody else not number one for Jackson. Okay. I'm sorry. All right. He thinks, he thinks he's a number one guy at basketball, too. He thinks he's number one at everything. Well, Tanner, I hate to be the bear bad news, but he's got a couple inches on you. Oh, no, I'd beat him. 65780 <laughs> is the air comfort service text line for Ask Us Anything. Tanner, you said you had something for us? Yeah, so I have like a... I have some of my own like moral codes and I, I broke one yesterday. Moral codes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, pumpkin spice season's already here. And I typically say like, I, you know, you shouldn't do the pumpkin spice until like October until it really cools down. Uh. I broke my code yesterday. I, I had a pumpkin spice uh, cream cold brew yesterday from Starbucks and I broke my own code. Is it too early? Because like I broke the code already. I broke my code and I can't live with myself. When, I, what, what was the code? Like you couldn't you have you it, until... it until it's cold and you can't have it until it's like October. And like I just saw a sign. I was like, oh man, that sounds really good. I need a little man. Live your life. Kick in the butt. Live, live your best I broke life. my own code though and if, I can't you, live with myself. If you want pumpkin spice and it's August, go ahead and get the pumpkin spice, man. If you want pumpkin spice in July, go get yourself oh, some pumpkin spice. That's definitely too early. That's definitely too early. I need to see this list of codes because are the codes that you can't get on the dating apps and you can't have pumpkin spice before October. I just need to know the rest of this list. Oh, it'd be a long list. Like Uh, uh, always bunt. Oh, definitely always bunt. That's definitely definitely up there. Uh, Um, Anything that an old man would believe in, that's probably something that he's got as part of his code. It has to be uh, six o'clock for your daily walk. Like that's the time. Six or later. Yeah. Six or later. Can't go earlier. Too hot then. Yeah. Definitely not a.m. Are you kidding me? Cup of, <laughs> cup of coffee with your morning paper. But no Ooh. pumpkin coffee. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no pumpkin spice cream. Definitely too early for that. I respect But I it. fell for it yesterday. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for Ask Us Anything. Uh, guys, in the off season, would you rather have Jack for another year or a top prospect that you trade Jack for for the next five? I think this one depends on what Jack Flaherty looks like the rest of this year. If Jack Flaherty looks like himself, then I would rather have Jack Flaherty. You're in your winning window right now. You don't trade that guy for a prospect when you're trying to win a championship right now. And Jack's a big part of those championship aspirations. So if they're as good as I think they are, and then you go into the offseason and Jack Flaherty is a big part of that rotation, I'm not trading him in the offseason. Well, in the fast lane, I was listening to that yesterday. They had a pretty good point on this is that, okay, say that you're not a Jack Flaherty fan. You still want to root for him, right? Because either way, if he leads, leaves, then that's still great for you that you're able to have more of a trade value trade piece. Mm-hmm. The better he does, the better for the Cardinals in the long run, period. Whether they're trading him, whether he moves on, whether he stays, it's all valuable to the Cardinals. Yeah, I, I would much rather have Jack Flaherty. And even if he's not himself, I still would much rather have Jack Flaherty than a prospect because I'm not sure how much a prospect really helps you. Like, I can understand the argument of, well, maybe he's a high-end prospect and he could come up next year. Or you can use that prospect and go get something else in return. I would just much rather have Jack Flaherty. Even if he doesn't return back to himself, I'm still going to bank on that upside always being there. It's kind of the same thing that you have the conversations about with a uh, Alex Reyes. Alex Reyes is a guy that has had injuries throughout his career, but you always saw the upside like you saw last year. You say, okay, if he's healthy, I know I'm going to get this from him and he's going to look like this. So I'd much rather have Jack Flaherty. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything. Guys, what's the college football game that you're most looking forward to watching tomorrow and you're not allowed to say Illinois with a local uh, tie? Joke's on you. They played tonight. So it doesn't <laughs> fit in that category. There you go. <laughs>
What's the number one college football game that you're looking forward to sitting down and watching tomorrow? Tanner, do you have one that immediately comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think mine is uh, the Utah-Florida game because I know I said this in the office and BK like immediately shot it down, but I, I'm I'm excited because Utah's getting all this hype as being a college football playoff team. And I know like you hear that and you go, oh, I feel like they've had that in the past. They're one of those smaller schools I feel like is kind of newer into this landscape. Like the problem I have with college football is it's always, all right, it's always the same teams that I'm going to see every year. Alabama, Georgia, any other SEC team that might have a really good year. And then I know Clemson's always going to be involved. Oklahoma at 1.2. Utah feels kind of like a newer team that's starting to kind of show itself as being a legitimate college football playoff contender. Tanner's too young to I'm remember when uh, Urban Meyer was there with Alex Smith <laughs> and they were exist. a contender for <laughs> no, the national you title. I, you know, here's the thing. One, Tennessee already played. They played Ball State. They won. So I'm I'm already kind of out. Honestly, this weekend I'm looking Are you forward a Vols to. Fan? I am a Vols oh, fan. Boy. I don't know. But that we, before I don't know that people come after show. me, I know. Before <laughs> people come after me on the text line, because I know you hear that, you'd be like, oh, well, she's covering Mizzou. Look. I appreciate Mizzou and what they're doing. I covered Arkansas as well. I appreciate, <laughs> appreciated Arkansas when I was there. I want to see them succeed, but I will always be a Vols fan at heart. It's going to be a little bit tougher when Mizzou plays Ar- uh, Tennessee a little bit later on this season. Because well, it's not going to go well soon. for us. You're fine. <laughs> That's not going to end well at all. I, I'm super interested to see them next week against Pittsburgh. That's going to yeah. be a, a really fun game. I, I think it's the Baylor Albany game. That's the one you're looking forward that, to. That's the one I'm really excited about uh, for, for my Mizzou interest. I'm very curious to see what Arkansas looks like against Cincinnati. I, I, I really have no idea what that team's going to be this year. I think that they are going to be seven and five, six and six type of team. I think they take a step back. I Arkansas like both those teams could be that this year. Um, yeah, exactly. And I don't know what to make of Cincinnati's offense with now a new quarterback. Alec Pierce has moved on as well. They had some excellent defenders that ended up going to the NFL. Both of these teams are potential step back candidates and both of them are trying to plug holes with transfers. I love KJ Jefferson. I don't know what he's going to look like without having Traylon Burks on the outside. So I like Cincinnati in that game, but that's maybe the one that I'm most looking forward to because I just I have no real feel for what either of those teams are going to be this year. Yeah, and another one I'm looking forward to, and it's a non-Power 5 game, is the Houston at UTSA game. Uh, number 24, Houston. I felt the that was UT- off the board. The, I won. had some betting odds on these on where you would go. That was not one of them. That <laughs> I, was, I was anticipating. I, I, I'm actually looking forward to that game because I'm trying to figure out who I want to take in that game because I'm not sold on Houston. I felt the UTSA experience last year against Illinois. I just don't know what either team is. It's, yeah. I have the same feeling in that game as I have in Cincinnati, Arkansas. Like I, I probably shouldn't put money on the game, but I want to put money on the game, but I have no idea where to lean for that game. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line to get involved in the show throughout the day. Today, we've got one's got to go coming up in the one o'clock hour. If you give us four options, we will tell you which one's got to go. That's coming up at one thirty. but coming up next, what does the rest of the season mean for Lars Newbar's opportunity in the car outfield not this year but next year can he lock down a starting spot for himself in 2023 we'll talk about him and where he fits into the cardinals outfield mix next year on 101 espn we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn In the air, deep rights, nude bar. Long home run, and he knew it. Lars Nude bar, 
A blast out to right. He's done a phenomenal job, and he's hungry, so he's always what's next for me, um, whether it's on the bases or offensively. You're seeing him uh, continuing to better himself more than happy uh, with uh, his body of work. That audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. Lars Newbar has been outstanding for the Cardinals in the second half of the season. In the second half so far, uh, really, let, you know what? Let's just go with the last 30 days. In the last 30 days, Lars Newbar is batting 260. He's got an OPS of 945. In the second half, his OPS is above 1,000. He's been unbelievable and everything you could have asked for and then some, especially given what we've seen in terms of the drop-off from Dylan Carlson against right-handed pitching. You needed somebody like a Lars Newbar to step up. The Fastlane had an interesting discussion yesterday. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. And Brooke Grimsley and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. They wondered, what does the outfield look like next year? And specifically, how does Lars Newtbar fit into that mix? Here's what they had to say yesterday on the fast line. If I'm looking for one thing, though, from this year that I, I thought that I was going to know that I, I guess I just don't know at this point, and I thought I did coming into the season, what's my outfield look like? Because this year I was like, okay, for sure. It's real. It's Carlson and it's Bader. Boom. They got it. They all did better last year. They're all set up for success this year. O'Neill struggled early, coming around as of late. Carlson has struggled throughout the year. Bader struggled, then got hurt, then got traded. That's going to be a big question again next year is what does this outfield actually look like and how are they going to produce? That's one of the biggest questions the rest of this season for me is what does this mean for Lars Newtbar? Can he capture one of those opening day starting outfield positions? I think that they're going to go back to Dylan Carlson in center field. That would be my assumption is they're going to place another big bet on him and hope that it turns out to be better than it has so far this year. I have no idea what the future looks like for Tyler O'Neill. He could be traded. He could be back in one of your starters, and neither of those would be surprising to me this offseason. I think that you're probably going to see Alec Burleson at some point next year. I think that you will see at whether it's opening day or by midseason, Jordan Walker fitting into this mix as well. Maybe they go out and sign a free agent. There's a lot of different configurations that this can take. But Brooke, how do you see Lars Newpar fitting into specifically that mix going into next year? Look, I, I'm going to be a little biased here because I'm a huge Lars Newpar fan. I think that what he brings to this team is so valuable. Obviously, you discussed the numbers there, so you see that on paper, but just seeing what he provides to that offense and also just to the field in general, I mean, wasn't he also the one that started the pepper cracking? Yeah. Right? I mean, those are silly things, but, you know, being around teams, that stuff matters. To have a spark, to have that energy really, really changes the dynamic of the team, and you can just tell when he's in the lineup, he is a difference maker. He's competing for every at bat and he works extremely hard and he's very encouraging to his other teammates. I think that Nolan Arnato, obviously those two are very close friends. You have the California connection, but I don't think that Nolan Arnato doesn't invite you to go hang out with him and train with him in the off season and also in the all-star break just for fun. That's because he sees a lot of potential and he wants that guy around. I say Lars Newbar is one of your starters moving forward and should be. I, I think Newport, I'm not sold on being a starter moving forward into 2023. I know his numbers have been awesome since the All-Star break, but 
for some reason, whatever reason it is, I, I see Lars Newport as a guy that is like one of those like perfect stopgap filler guys that comes in, plays good baseball, but he's more likely going to project as a fourth outfielder moving forward. So like heading into 2023, I mean, I agree. I don't know what this outfield is going to look like. I agree with BT. I, I have serious questions about what this outfield looks like heading into next year. The one thing I do feel comfortable in saying is, I think Jordan Walker's going to be here at some point. I know Jordan Walker's going to be here at some point. Whether that's yeah. the start of the year or it's going to be midway at some point next year. So I can slot him into an outfield spot. I, I think Carlson's going to be here. I think they're going to hope that this was just a rough year for him and he bounces back and he's back to being an everyday player. And then it comes down to, do I want Tyler O'Neill with me or am I going to use him as trade bait? I think they look at moving him in the offseason. And then I think you'd look at potentially bringing in a stopgap guy like a Jack Peterson or someone like that that can go in and can fight with Lars Nupar for playing time, and you can put him in in kind of a, I don't want to say platoon with Nupar because it's two left-handers, but someone like that. Bring in somebody that competes with Lars Nupar that can potentially win that other outfield starting spot and have Lars Nupar be kind of that fourth outfielder and also have him battle with a Juan Yepes slash Alec Burleson for that outfield role. I just look at all of the guys that they have right now fighting for the second base and shortstop jobs and then also what we're talking about right now with their outfield. They're going to have to make some big decisions in the offseason. Like, and maybe that includes trading some guys that we're not anticipating as of today. Because you look at the middle infield, you've got Edmund, Gorman, Donovan, and whether it be Paul DeYoung or going out and signing a guy like a Jose Iglesias or somebody else to play shortstop for you next year. You look at the outfield, we've mentioned Newt Bar, Carlson, Walker, Burleson. You've got Yepes that can kind of fit into that mix as well. That's like 10 different dudes that are fitting into two different positions on your roster right now. You don't have enough spots for all of those players, not just in the big leagues, but really to fit into the mix to find out what they are going into next year. So, and I don't even think I, did I mention Tyler O'Neill? He's fitting into that mix too. I, you're going to have to make some big decisions. And so for Lars Newtbar going into next year, he's a part of my roster construction. He will be on my big league roster. Am I putting him in pin in my starting lineup for opening day against a right-handed pitcher next year? No, not necessarily, because I think it's possible you end up seeing Dylan Carlson, Jordan Walker, and maybe a guy that we're not discussing right now, or Tyler O'Neill as your starting outfield going into next year. I do love the fact that Lars Newtbar, though, is somebody that I can turn to. Like, if mm-hmm. things go poorly for you next year with Dylan Carlson again against right-handed pitching... Lars Newbar is going to be a starter for me by midseason once again, and you just turn things over to him, and I've got no issues with it. He is the perfect fourth outfielder in my mind, and the fact that they have that kind of built-in flexibility is the kind of thing that they have not had in recent years. You mm-hmm. would go into the season, I was like, man, if, if this doesn't work out, I don't know who they're turning to here. And now you've got some insurance that's already on the roster, so I feel great about that, but... When you just go through all of the names that are potentially fitting into this mix, I think it shows me there's going to be some trades this offseason, and they could be names that we didn't anticipate going into the season getting traded. I mean, think about how crazy it is. At the start of the season, would you even have guessed that we would be having a discussion like this right now in no. September? At the start I of September. I thought we'd be more likely to talk about Tyler O'Neill getting extended at this point than Tyler O'Neill potentially being traded after the year. Yeah. I And here's the thing. Tyler O'Neill, I think especially when he's consistent and when he's healthy has been very, very good for the Cardinals. Obviously he hasn't won a gold glove for nothing. And at times he's very clutch in certain situations as well at the plate. But 
it's just the way that you're looking at it. You list off those names. There's a lot of competition mm-hmm. waiting to take his spot. Everybody, I feel like everybody in Cardinals Nation is waiting to see Jordan Walker. I mean, the upside of him seems astronomical, right? I mean, a huge talent. And then even Alec Burleson. I mean, the fact that he's been sitting in the minors with what he's been able to do down there is absolutely crazy because I feel like many other teams would have called him up but we're in such a good situation right now where you have so much depth and that is a good situation now making the right moves is going to be the issue I feel like for the Cardinals moving forward and also in this postseason has Mo earned that trust though I I know there was a point in time Uh, that was not all that long ago that the answer to this question would have been a resounding no especially given the outfield construction that we had what two years ago now but as of today, given what we've seen this year, do you do you trust what Mo can do for these moves? Because he's he's going to have to make some big time decisions, and you you hope that he picks right this time around. Well, I mean, luckily, just with recent stories, it seems like the move to get rid of Carlos Martinez and Marcelo Zuna has Oof. panned out very well. That's at least somewhat of an upside. But yeah, there is some hesitancy there because of those past mistakes. I mean, how many guys, uh, Randy or Rosarina, have we seen that you're just like, man, we would have loved to have that guy around here, right? I. So I trust Mo on the trade front. The free free agent signings, no, I'll just be honest, because most of them have backfired recently. I understand Pulis what about Dickerson. Albert, I was going to say, I'm what saying, about Albert Pulis? I know, but like the pitching ones have really backfired, and you look at like the last like five years, some of the free agent signings just have gone awry for the St. Louis Cardinals. The trade front, I do. I, I trust John Mosaic. If he's going to figure out something with this glut in the outfield of what he's going to do with it, and if he's going to maneuver pieces around to make trades and stuff— yeah, I, I trust John Mosaic to do it because I can't. Besides the Sandy Alcantara trade, that's that's really the only one he's lost in my opinion in the last what ten years. I, I know that you can look at the Randy Rosarena trade, but I, I still don't want to jump on that one just yet because I still think there might there could be something left in Matthew Libertor. We'll see. But in terms of the trade front, yeah, I would I would trust John Mosaic. The thing is, is I just don't know what you do in terms of how you're moving these pieces and how you're looking to upgrade because. Originally, my thought was, well, you trade Tyler O'Neill and you go and get like a Pablo Lopez. But then I think of your starting rotation. I go, well, I feel like the rotation's pretty solid for next year. And I don't know if you bring in Pablo Lopez to add into that mix with that rotation because of how it feels. Are you moving him for a big time bullpen arm? I don't think so. That doesn't feel like a Cardinals move. Are you, and then then I look at it. Okay, can you move him for a middle infielder? Well, who's that middle infielder that you're going to go get that you can trade a Tyler O'Neill or people of that esque to go yep. make that move? So I don't under, I don't know what the move is exactly. It's not as clear to me as it was in the at the trade deadline. Maybe it's moving depth for a star. Like may, may may not a superstar, but a really high level player. Like maybe you end up trading a Dakota Hudson, a Tyler O'Neill, and maybe it's an Alec Burleson. You say, hey, w- what's the best pitcher that we can acquire with these three chips? And it doesn't have to specifically be those three, but two outfielders and one of your pitchers that you have right now that's supposed to be a part of that starting rotation mix next year. You can just go about it that way. I, I To answer my own question, I, I do think that John Mosellock has earned the benefit of the doubt on the trade front. I know the Randy Rosarena one is a trade that we're going to continue looking back upon <laughs> until Matthew Liberatore becomes what they clearly thought he was going to be. It just hasn't shown up to this point in time. And maybe it never will. And that'll go down as a loss for John Mosellock. But the other trades that he's made over the last five years... I think just about every single one of them can be 
at worst a draw, and many of them are legitimate wins on the side of the Cardinals. And when you look at the big deals that they've made, like a Paul Goldschmidt, a Nolan Arenado, those are massive W's in the in favor of the Cardinals. So if they, I don't think they're going to make a deal at that level, but somewhere between like a an Arenado slash Goldschmidt deal and that like mid-level deal, I think that's something you could see this offseason for sure. And maybe that's the way that they filter through, cycle through some of these outfielders to be able to make the roster just make some more sense going into the early portion of next season. On the free agent front, here's the free agents, the big time ones at least, that the Cardinals have signed over the last seven years. Albert Pujols, Corey Dickerson, Steven Matz this offseason. Go back to 2020, KK Brad Miller. 2019, Andrew Miller. 2018, Miles Michaelis. That one worked out pretty well for him. 2017, Fowler and Cecil. 2016, Leak and Sung Wan Oh. And then 2015, Mark Reynolds. Free agent front has not gone quite as well as the trade front, to say the least. Ooh, somebody just texted this in. And I'm all in on this as well. I think the Cardinals should be in on the Shohei Otani sweepstakes. I mean, sure. Yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. That <laughs> sounds not? great. Right. You just if you listed off some of those guys that you did, like the Burleson. That's going to take Jordan Walker. That's going to take Dylan Carlson. That's going to take Nolan Gorman. Like now we're talking about this, the players that were involved potentially for Juan Soto. Put Same. all of those guys in there and then add a little bit more oh, for Shohei Otani. Otani's probably leaving after the year. Yeah, too. And you get one year of it. I, I love the idea of going out to acquire Shohei Otani. I do not view that as even remotely realistic for the Cardinals. What about Verlander? I mean, if you want to go sign him, sure. I'm in. I, I don't know that this team's going to pay $40 million for a pitcher, though. Do you think that's something they'll do? No, but <laughs> Mo has has surprised me lately. I will say that. I think if that's one upside to look at, he's he's made some surprising moves that have actually panned out especially with Jordan Montgomery and Jose Quintana. I have to give him a lot of props for Absolutely. that because that has worked out so well. That, that's why I think the guy that we're like saying we're not talking about is probably coming from like over in the Korean League or Japanese League again <laughs> like they've done before. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't see them. That's why they're going to get a bullpen love, arm this year. Yeah, I love oh, – great. That was you know awesome that's gonna this happen. year with Verhagen uh, because I, I agree. I as, Ver, as much sense as Verlander makes, I still – him or Rodon, I don't, I'm not sure they spend the big bucks to go get those guys. I think they'll use it as like our big free agent signing for pitching is Adam Wainwright. And it's like, well, you just brought him back. What do, you, what do you mean? That wasn't the big free agent signing we're all talking about. I do, I do think they're going to look to improve the middle of the infield. I don't know where you go get that someone on the trade front, though. I think that's more of a free agent signing. And that's why right. I think like Iglesias makes a ton of sense for this team. Coming up in 15 minutes, this might be the final time that we end up seeing Serena Williams on a tennis court. Well, it is going to be, but is this next match specifically going to be the last time that we see her? We'll talk about that coming up in 15 minutes and where she ranks among the all-time players that we've seen in different sports over the last 20 years. But coming up next, it sure sounds like the expansion of the college football playoff is coming sooner rather than later. Is that a good thing for the sport? We'll talk about but next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's fair to say that there is more positivity, unanimity in terms of everyone wanting to expand the playoff. The question is when. And just for background, for people who are listening, in February, it was an 8-3 to three vote in favor of it. But again, it had to be unanimous. And the ACC, the Pac-12, and the Big Ten at that time voted against it. 
That was Heather Dinich on ESPN Radio yesterday talking about the possibility of the college football playoff expanding as soon as today, which kind of came out of nowhere. It was like earlier this week, hey, we might expand the playoff. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be to 12 teams, not eight. Like, oh, just all right. slip it in there, you know, like, oh, nothing to see here. Nothing to worry about. No, this is a pretty big deal, especially with what they're throwing out there, which is 12 teams. 12 as early as 2024. So this could take place next year, right after no surprise here. The sec is likely to expand. The big 10 is likely to expand and we could see this happen very quickly thereafter. By the way, that's Brooke Grimsley. He's Tanner Hendrickson and I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll get into the junk drawer coming up at 1245. According to Heather Danich and her story over on ESPN.com, it's quote 50 50 as to whether or not there will be any kind of vote today. But if there is, there's a real possibility that we see an expanded playoff. Let's start with the obvious, Brooke. Do you think this is the right thing to do? Do you think it is good for college football for us to get to a 12 team playoff? Because whether it happens today, tomorrow, sometime in the next three months, this is almost certainly going to happen. And now it's just a matter of when as opposed to if. Absolutely not. My first question whenever I saw that is who asked for this? Who's asking who is absolutely just vying for a 12 team playoffs situation? It's absolutely crazy to me. I think it's more of them looking at the money because I was reading an article last night where the projection is, is that if you have this 12 team expansion for the playoffs is that that means that that would bring in reportedly what they are predicting over a billion in revenue with that being TV contracts, all that stuff. I think that's where this decision is being made. I think it's should be eight teams at the most. 12 is a little bit absurd. It's almost like everybody gets a trophy. Uh, I, I do think it is good for college football to expand. I don't know about 12. I agree with Brooke. I, I think it probably should be more of in that eight range. Give it the thing is, is like normally I'd say we give it to your five power conferences, their conference champion gets in. But like I look at the Big 12 losing Oklahoma and Texas, and it's like, oh, cool. Like huh. Kansas State could get in at some point. Uh, but I, I do think eight is the right number. I think four is just a little bit just short of that because there are still really good teams when you look at the when the season ends and you look at kind of that five through eight range there are always really good teams and I also think it helps some of these smaller FBS schools like I know Cincinnati got in last year but I don't think they were the first team ever that deserved to be in a college football playoff some of those UCF teams my opinion were really good to get at least a shot at the college football playoff so I like the idea of expanding. I, I'm not sold on 12. I, I think eight is more the right number. But I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm going to watch it anyway. So like, I, I have no complaints about it. And my my biggest thing though is, I wonder how much. I mean, they don't have concern about this. My biggest thing is though, is this going to help with any kind of like competitive balance? Because I no. look at the four now. Like, I think we've I think we've talked about this before. You look at the college football playoff system right now. One usually blows out four, and two usually blows out three, and then you get a good college football championship game, and that's kind of where my concern lies as well. I actually don't mind it. I, I again, I think eight is the right number. You get the five conference winners, and then you add in three of the like. Uh, at large bids, if you will. So last year, that would have meant you ended up getting all the teams that we ultimately saw. And then you add in like as the at large winners, uh, Cincinnati, Notre Dame, and maybe Ohio State would have been thrown in there as well. You get the best teams in there. That's fine. We, we don't need any further than that. 12 seems like a lot. What I'm really curious to see is how they're going to go about this as well. 
Are you going to go about like, hey, all of the division winners are in and we're going to like get rid of the conference championship games and then we're just going to start the postseason with that game and use that as part of the playoff? Are you just going to go down and say, okay, top 12 teams on the college football playoff rankings at the end of the year are going to be the 12 teams that play in the college football playoff? Because I don't know about you guys. I didn't feel like I needed to watch a whole lot more Michigan State, Utah, or Pittsburgh football last year. And those were 10 through 12 in the rankings last what? season. That's crazy. Did we need to That's... see Alabama versus Pittsburgh in the college football no. playoff? I know how that one ends. It's Kenny, not good. Kenny Pickett would have led them to a victory. It's just going to be It's going to be strange to see what this means for college football. That being said, you're telling me I get to see more quality college football games at the end of the year? Like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for it. I'm going to be super excited when we get to January. I was pessimistic about the expanded NFL playoffs, and we watched it. I was like, this is great. I can't believe we get more playoffs. I could have done without the Steelers last year, but I get it. Touche. But we got three days in a row of playoff football once we got to January. And Stalter told me at the beginning, hey, you're going to end up liking this. He was right. College football playoff right now, I think that this is too far in terms of the expansion. By the time we get there, I'll say this is great. And I can't believe that we get this much quality college football at the end of the year. And then you'll be ready for 16-team playoff. No, no. Once we get to this, (laughs) this is it. But I I will be curious to see what the format looks like if they decided to go this route. Definitely. Well, I think here's the thing. None of us are disagreeing that it needed to be expanded. Right? For from standpoint, it's the same teams that we keep seeing over and over again. So when you hear expansion, you're like, okay, great. Now that we're going to have a little bit more competition, maybe finally we'll see, you know, some different teams getting more of the national spotlight instead of As the same. As a Tennessee fan, this means that you're going to be in the conversation. Oh, As a Mizzou course. fan, if they have yeah. like their best years, they can get back into the conversation, even if they lose in the SEC championship. I just say maybe a little bit more of some baby steps into this. Why do we have to jump all the way from four to 12. That's crazy because right now, in you general... You said it earlier. You know what yeah. the reason is. It's the money. It's money. It's because, one, sports betting is huge, as we all know. TV contracts are huge. So when they see 12 and you already have like an over billion dollar valuation, it's more about that and that's what concerns me rather than this is actually beneficial for all these teams. I, I'm a little upset you didn't mention Illinois has a chance when you were like reading through our teams oh, here. And you just completely I was going, passed, I was going outside. <laughs> uh, but I will, I will say this. I I don't know if you can go with a format when you go with the 12-team playoff format. Like, you can't have, like, conference winners in that, in my opinion, because of all the conference realignment. Like, there's not going to be a Power Five before much longer. I think we can all kind of see the tea leaves. Like, I think Clemson's abandoning the ACC here soon, sooner rather than later. I think Oregon is going to be abandoning the Pac-12 soon. So I think you kind of have to wait and see how this conference realignment goes first until you can kind of say, okay, here's how we're going to align this. The four Power Four conference winners will get in, and then it'll be uh, berths. Or like you're saying, your division winners, do they kind of get in, and then you can go from there. I I think you have to wait until conference realignment. So I think for now, if you're going to do a 12-team playoff, which starts in like two years, I think you just go by kind of like what it is now, where there's no real format, and it's, all right, let's just have 10 guys sit in a room and debate who's going to be 1 through 12, uh, because I think that's the best way to do it while you're waiting to see how the conferences come out. I just want to say this on the front end. If that's the route that we go, I don't want to hear any bickering about who the 12th team is. Like I know we're going (laughs) to do that, because that's that's the way that all of this works, but... Man, it is so hard for me to care about who the twelfth team is between Pittsburgh at eleven and two and BYU at ten and two. Like, oh, I'm going to complain for BYU to get in. If that's the conversation <laughs> that we're having at the end of the season, and who knows, there's going to be two equivalent teams to that this year. I, I 
Take whoever you want. It does not matter to me. And neither of those teams is going to be able to do anything once they get in. Like last year, BYU lost to Boise State. You know how you get into the college football playoff? You don't lose to Boise at home. That That's the way you do it. So those are the conversations that are bound to happen once we get to the 12-team playoff that it's just going to feel so unnecessary in the moment. Well, and one of my just biggest qualms with college football right now in general is that it seems like everybody gets a bowl game, right? And not everybody should deserve to get a bowl game. I yeah, feel Mizzou. like... Oh, hey. I'm not calling oh, right, out Mizzou. Right, hey, <laughs> all I'm saying is you beat an FCS team to get that bowl eligibility. I just, in general, want to see teams be a little bit more competitive because then you also will get a little bit more competitive when it comes to scheduling. You won't have as many of these cupcakes to help pad your, you know, final season and, you know, what you're doing and all that stuff because then you automatically get into a bowl game. That's I'm tired of everything. I do everything. think that this will help, by the way. Exactly. If, if you get the 12-team expanded playoff, you'll see teams like Alabama, Georgia, Oregon, Ohio State, etc. You're already seeing some of this now, but if you get to the 12 teams, losing that one game early in the season doesn't kill you. Now you're still alive by the end of the year so you could see some of those big time matchups early in the year I, you, I think that's one unintended consequence that will be good for fans would you be opposed to just moving to an all-conference schedule like your regular season is like i like having non-con 10 regular games. okay because if it's I, a I'm good kind of non-conference you. game yeah. not, not cupcakes i'm I, tired of the cupcakes I, I think you'll see probably what one or two non-conference games stick around i still think you're going to get those cupcakes though like somebody's going to like alabama is still going to schedule utah yeah. state to just get their warm-up game in i i'm not sure how much this will still help i think a lot of those big teams just want to avoid each other until they possibly can't because it's going to matter with seeding how their team is looked at through the college football lens i'm not sure it's going to get rid of the cupcake games that's why i threw out the idea of would you be okay if it was just hey let's just play 10 10 uh conference games and then when you get your non-conference games it's going to be the playoff when things really matter yeah, I'm, they'll, they'll stick with 12 games because there's so much revenue that they're giving up if they don't play those 12 games with the home dates in particular. Um, and we know that's what all of this ends up being about is the money. That's why teams are moving to different conferences. That's why we're expanding the playoff. That's what makes the world go round in college. So they're going to keep the 12 games. And then it just becomes a question of can we make more money? I think what you might see is there may be a requirement that of your 12 college football games every year, Eight are going to be for the, for example, in the SEC, eight are going to be the conference games. Three of those other non-con games have to be against a power five opponent. And then you've got the one that you can do whatever you want with where Mizzou plays against Louisiana Tech or uh, Delaware State. They played recently like those kinds of games are still going to exist, but it'll probably be limited to just one time per year that you're able to play against them. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next, this is going to be the final time we see Serena on a tennis court. We need to take a moment to appreciate her greatness. And I want to see where you guys fall. Brady, Serena, Tiger. I think you can make an argument. Those are the three most consequential North American athletes of the last 20 years. How would you rank them in terms of their importance? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Our first meeting is a memorable one. Serena Williams just supreme in the final set when she had to be. Rolling back the years. Vintage. Are you surprising yourself with your level at the moment? What? Are you surprising yourself with your level? (laughs) No, I know. (laughs) 
just Serena, you know, so. <laughs> what a badass moment that was the other night as Serena Williams takes down the number two player in the world. There's something about what we're watching right now at the U.S. Open that in St. Louis, I can't help but compare it to what we've watched this year from Albert Pujols, where it's like sometimes these legends just have a little bit left in the tank. And when they put it all out there, God, it is special to watch that greatness on display, especially at a more advanced age. And alongside Brooke Grimsley and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Serena Williams was a two to one underdog in that match against the number two uh, women's player in the world. It was the largest she's been at an, uh, as an underdog at any Grand Slam event in the last 15 years. And then she went out there and won the match. Just an unbelievable performance by her. And Brooke, I did want to take a little bit of time today to talk about Serena because this is going to be the final time that we get to see her on the tennis court. She's already announced this is going to be the final act for her. What is your lasting takeaway of whether it be Serena's career or just what we witnessed the other night with her taking down the number two player in the world? Well, I grew up playing tennis competitively, so my I'm just in a room full of <laughs> tennis players right now. Oh, nice. Well, so Serena was everything to me growing up. So I, I've had chills just watching all of this unfold. I mean, everything about this is just truly magical, even to see her daughter in the stands with the white beads. And as we know, watching Serena early on, she had the white beads in her hair, too. And now it's turned into diamonds. I mean, as a tennis player, Serena changed the game so much. I remember just being a little girl and being like, okay, I got to I got to hit my forehand as hard as Serena, okay? Like this is what I wanted to be, <laughs> you know, a power tennis player just like she was cuz she was a force to be reckoned with. And what she's been able to do in this is just almost like a Hollywood ending. I hope it doesn't end tonight because obviously she is coming off of no rest playing doubles last night, which was tough to see. I think we were all kind of hoping that maybe and- Go as well as yeah, <laughs> Venus and Serena would, would win that doubles matchup. But even just talking about the doubles there, they had to move them to a bigger court because of how many people wanted to see Venus and Serena and specifically Serena because she has said that this is her final tournament, her last ride. That just shows you right there her impact to the sport and how much she has meant to people. She is must watch TV. She has been and she is especially right now. Yeah, and, and you said that perfectly because she she is must watch TV, and she's made tennis that she's she's the female version of what in the men's side you had three of them: Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. Those three made men's tennis watchable. Serena was the one that transcended the sport of tennis on the women's side of it. And like I know that she plays tonight. I, I mean, I'm not. I don't think this is the last match for her. I, I think she goes on, and I think she wins the U.S. Open. That's how good she is. She was not a 2-1 to one underdog against the 2C. That was just ridiculous. She's a much better player than that. So uh, just the just her and her power. I mean, I mentioned this the other day. Like She transcended the game because she was a unicorn in her sport, and usually you see people try to recreate that, and you just can't. Serena has dominated with her power in the, on the women's side of tennis. It's been impressive to watch. It's been one hell of a career. And again, I just think she goes out on top in this tournament. So I was thinking about this earlier today. My buddy texted me. He said, hey, if you've got Brady, Serena, and Tiger, those are the three like North American athletes in the major sports that you look at and you say – 
they have completely dominated their respective sports in a way that nobody else has. And we've got people that are texting in. You could throw LeBron into that category as well. I think the difference is the championships, like the, the titles for in Tiger, the, the the majors, for Serena, the grand slams that she's won, for Brady, he's just, he's won more championships than any other quarterback in the history of the sport. I think that changes the argument a little bit. So I, I don't include LeBron, even as a LeBron honk myself in this same conversation. I think it's those three, Brady, Serena, Tiger. When you look back at their respective careers, and now we've got, for the most part, all of it in our rearview mirror, other than Brady, who still has a little bit left in front of him. How would you rank those three in terms of their greatness over the last 20 plus years now? Oh, easy for me. Tiger Woods, Serena, and then Tom Brady, if those are the three, which I know I've seen on the text line, everybody's like, well, what about LeBron? What about Phelps? All that stuff. You know, to your point, it's just athletes who have completely changed the game as well and also have competed at a super high level, done something that we've never seen before in that sport. Tiger Woods completely changed golf, changed the golf world. The players, what they're able to accomplish now, the money that they're making, the TV contracts that are coming in, that is because of Tiger Woods. He was must-watch TV, and he still is because everybody wants to see the Tiger Woods of old Serena Williams completely changed tennis as well. I mean, especially for that time. I mean, like me, the whole reason I even wanted to play tennis, like I'm sure many other young athletes that decided that tennis was their sport over some of the other more popular ones is you wanted to be like Serena. She had the world in her hands and she completely changed the sport. I, I think for me, I, number one for me would be Tom Brady because it, it's a power five sport and just the way that he's been able to dominated over such a long period of time and I understand that it's a team sport but the fact of the matter that he's able to win seven Super Bowls at the quarterback position to me is still impressive so I put him at one number two for me would be Serena just because of what I said she was kind of the unicorn of her sport because she was able to go out there and she dominated with her power brought a new uh kind of style of tennis to the women's side of things and then for me it would be Tiger at number three just because because as you missed the as greatness was, when you were three. <laughs> well, to be fair, I missed most the greatness of Serena, too, and Tom Brady. Uh, but I, I think for Tiger, like, I never really saw – I don't – when I think of Tiger, I just think of this awesome golfer. I don't really think of a guy that he won because of a different style of game. Like, Oh, buddy. I, I know, but, like, it's not as obvious to me as it is with Serena, in my opinion. And that's why okay. I would put Tiger at three. But to be fair, I mean, ranking these three is really difficult yeah. task. Well, it's not like I'm throwing out a wrong answer here. No, there, there is no wrong answer. Like, you could put Tom Brady at number one, and I'd be like, yeah, I get it. I understand why you would go that route, and it's hard. Like, we had somebody say it's impossible to compare individual and team sports. 100%. But when you look at Tom Brady as an individual, he has transcended teams. Think about the different players that he's had as the cores of those New England teams. Like, you go into that first three out of four, that dynasty in the 01 to 04 range. Those teams were based mostly on defense and running the football and Brady making special plays down the stretch. You look at the like 07 to 10 range. You had the greatest offense I've ever seen in the history of football with him throwing to Randy Moss and Wes Welker and Dante Stallworth. And they were just throwing the ball all over the yard. And that's completely different than what they were earlier. Then you get into like the 2012, 13 range. Now you've got this two tight end offense. That was unlike anything I've ever seen with Hernandez and Gronk. And then later on, of course, 
course, they finally become the fully formed version that we now remember of the Gronk and Edelman offense with pretty solid defense. And they were just complimentary football, the comebacks, all of that that ended his time in, in New England. And then finally, for the last act, oh, by the way, he goes to Tampa Bay with a completely new roster, completely new coaching staff and dominates there as well and wins another title. I think you could have Brady at number one, and I wouldn't argue. But for me, I I think I have the same list as you do, Brooke. I think I would go Tiger one, Serena two and Brady three, just because when you look at what Tiger and Serena have done and the greatness that they have that does legitimately transcend their sport. Like, Tiger changed the way that people play golf today. Tanner, I know you said that Serena did this as well, and she absolutely did. But Tiger made golf into a, like, physical sport. Tiger was training with Marines, like Navy SEALs, just to make sure that he was at the peak condition at all times. He completely changed it, and he made people interested in golf that had no interest in golf whatsoever. So I would have him number one, and he was just so much superior to every other player on that tour. I'd have him one. I'd go Serena two, and then I think third for me is Brady. But again, to your point, I think you could have any of these three mixed up in any other discussion, and that's why I think these are the three. I think they are the ones that deserve to be in a separate category from basically everybody else that we've watched over the last 20 years. And this is why I love these conversations, because people get a little bit hot and bothered with some of these conversations. These are fun. This is fun because you also get to learn how much athletes have impacted certain people, certain areas, certain sports, and that is just incredible to see. I mean, everybody has a story or something that they see in a certain player that changed the game. That says a lot about things as well. And just the fact that you can have these discussions. I mean, Serena, even her impact too, just for women's sports in general, that was so encouraging for me to see as a little girl growing up is that a woman can play at a high level, get the respect that she deserves for being a good player even though she's a woman. And that's something that you don't see in many sports. Somebody get to that level as a female, get the attention she deserves, gets all that stuff, which I know came with a lot of, you know, pushback as well, because maybe some people don't like her attitude and stuff like that. She had to be tough because of all the people who had doubted her, didn't want her in the sport because she didn't fit the certain image. And she changed the game and rose above all that. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're diving into a a story from Kylie McDaniel on the teams that are best set up for the long term in Major League Baseball. We'll ask him where he ranks the Cardinals and why he might have them higher than people would have expected otherwise. That's coming up at one o'clock. The junk drawer, though, is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve a checking account today. Daniel VSPN joins us in 10 minutes to tell us why he thinks the Cardinals have one of the five brightest futures in all of Major League Baseball. That is coming up at one o'clock. But right now, let's dive into the junk drawer. And Tanner, I've got a way for you to earn five grand a year. I'm in. I don't even need to know what it is. <laughs> all you have to do is eat Kellogg's like you already do. 
So oh, here is nice. a new offering from Kellogg's. They are offering a cash incentive to switch out your casserole for a bowl of cereal. The company will pay five people five grand plus a year's supply of cereals like Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, uh, Frosted Mini Wheats as part of their new sweepstakes. Quote, Kellogg's cereals shine as stars of the breakfast table, but morning isn't the only time that cereal can bring you some fun. So what they are asking you to do is for five weeks, they are going to be selecting somebody that will be a part of this campaign, if you will. Where instead of eating cereal at breakfast, you just eat it for every dinner. Oh, wait, I'm out. Really? You, want to, you, for five you grand? already signed up. It's too late. No, no. Kellogg's already heard you and you're signed up. All you up. have to do I'm is out. eat cereal for dinner every day. I, no, I'm not doing that. I, Why? Look, <laughs> I'm not that big on cereal for breakfast. Look, I could do it if you gave me five weeks and you said you had to eat cereal for breakfast for five weeks. Sure, I can oh, do that. Come I got to do it man. for breakfast. Lunch and dinner? No, just dinner. Just, just dinner. dinner. You can throw just, it out. Well, you I don't, don't have, have to eat, eat it for breakfast. breakfast? No, no, no. Oh, so no. This like, is just a, a campaign for dinner. Now, instead so of I eating have it for my, breakfast, it's for dinner. So I can have my cup of coffee while grilling cheeseburgers 100%. for breakfast? Yeah. You can oh, just flip them. Mind. Yeah, I'm in. You say cheeseburgers? <laughs> well, I got to have my dinner in place of breakfast now, so... Yeah. Could have gone with anything. Could have gone with like eggs, <laughs> breakfast tacos. I'm, I'm kind of like digging cheeseburgers. So like that might be dinner tonight after after I get done doing my football game. But uh, yeah, I'm in now. I thought it was you had to like do it like breakfast and dinner. That's too much cereal. I got to be honest. Out. I'm not a big uh, cereal guy. Just in general. I'm not either. But you, you show me a five with three zeros after it. Yeah, I'll eat it. I feel, I feel like obviously you have to do it right, but yeah. I, I get what you're saying because I'm the same way. I'm I cannot mix up if it's a breakfast food. It's a breakfast food. I have to have it for breakfast, so that's eggs are for mornings. That's sacred. Yep. Bacon, all that stuff. That's for mornings. Your lunch foods have to be lunch foods. Dinner has to be dinner. Exactly. Throwing that off throws me off. But for five thousand, of course I'll do it. I just I'm trying to understand why are they trying to show that you can have cereal for dinner for some reason? Like what is the purpose of I this campaign? I think this is just a super easy way for them to get free advertising. Would be my assumption. Look, like hey, brought it up today. We're gonna have twenty five thousand dollars that we're spending, and as a result of this, people are gonna be posting their cereal on Instagram over the next five weeks while they're eating it for dinner. So I. My guess is this is just their way of having like a viral campaign, if you will. And it worked. I'm talking about it on the did radio. You, did you see this text from the 314? I do it. I eat it for dessert. What is wrong with you, sir, madam? <laughs> cereal for dessert? That well, right. okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To be fair, there is some delicious cereal out there it that you right. could have for dessert. Like the, what is it? The Reese's Puffs. Oh, yeah. That's that's desserty. For some reason, when I was a child, I would start my mornings with that sometimes. Um, Captain Crunch, that could be for dessert as well. There's some really sweet ones that you could get by for dessert. Yeah, you, you could make this work. I mean, there's some, like, you go to places and they'll have, like, the dinner espressos where they throw some of this stuff in it. Uh, no, I'm out. Dessert? Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm man. out on that. And, no, this is to, a good uh, point. What's the place? The Shack. They've got their smooth, or the, the shakes that they put the breakfast cereal oh, into. No, I'm <laughs> definitely out. Someone says it's good for the munchies. Now, that is probably true. Coming up in 15 minutes. <laughs> you, know, you know it's true. The Dodgers are showing signs of cracking in their bullpen. If we're worried about their bullpen, though, should we be having the same discussion about the Cardinals? Tanner thinks that we might. But coming up next, Kylie panic. McDaniel of ESPN.com is going to join the show to tell us why he thinks the Cardinals have such a bright future. That's next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
to the Brown and Crippen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend and ESPN's Major League Baseball insider and analyst. He is Kylie McDaniel joining us here on the show. Kylie, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? Always flattered to be on the celebrity line, and I'll warn you guys, I'm on the golf course right now, but I'm going to manage all the noise. This is like sort of my off-season, even though it's technically in-season. That's great. Well, earlier this week, our morning show uh, has Adam Wainwright on every week, and he was live from the golf course with Miles Michaelis, and we had Michaelis do some play-by-play for us. So uh, we'll just have you do the same, Kylie. It'll be great. Yeah, my buddy just killed a drive down the middle. So there you go. We're off, we're off and running. It has the same oomph to it as when Miles Michaelis is doing it for Wayno. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this guy's a lot better than me, too. So me skipping a hole is not a problem. Kylie McDaniel is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Kylie, you had a great piece earlier this week that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, you ranked all of the teams in terms of what their cores look like over the next few years. No surprise for people here in St. Louis. Atlanta was at number one. But you don't have to drop down very far to get to the Cardinals. They were fourth in your rankings of the best cores for the next few years. Why do you have them so high? Expand on that for us. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's, I would say somewhat objective process where I just line up all the players that are eligible for people that didn't see the article. It's anyone who's under control for this year and the next two years. So there's, you know, guys like uh, DeGrom and Bogarts and guys that will be free agents the uh, upcoming years that are really good players that are not eligible. So it'll, it'll warp a little bit who is a good team right now and who is a good team for this process. But I just lined them all up. I, I would put guys into buckets to make it easier to just eyeball it and be like, oh, well, this team has three guys. This team has zero guys at this tier. So they're obviously better. But then, you know, when you get teams next to each other that are very similar, you just sort of bucket them and, and say, like, all right, this guy versus that guy, that guy versus that guy. Who do you want for the next, uh, you know, uh, the rest of this year and two more years? And I, I was a little surprised to see the Cardinals that high. But I also, uh, in, in looking at their eligibility to basically get Juan Soto, realized they have a lot of really good young players. Uh, that their offer would have been as good or close to as good as San Diego, which has been sort of like the high watermark in terms of putting together a good group of young players. Well, and you kind of mentioned the Juan Soto trade there. I think, you know, of course, here in St. Louis, we want to be like, all right, yeah, we have great prospects, but you truly do believe that what the Cardinals have and what they've been able to build and develop in their minor league programs is really continuing to pay off for them, right? Yeah, they've. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple times over the last like six months or so. Uh, but in in doing like my sort of the main part of my job is focusing on the amateur draft, high school, college players. Uh, there are teams that are perceived as being very good at the draft, whether they're you know good scouting and development and traditional teams like San Diego, or teams that are really good at the model and good at very specific kinds of players like Cleveland is with college pitching. St. Louis is like under the radar. I think now it's probably on the radar, <laughs> but under the radar, been very good at the draft. And if you were to just do like a simple calculation from like how much prospect list value should this pick create and how much has it created, St. Louis may be the best out of the last two or three drafts. They've been doing a very good job. And so they're just at a higher rate than everyone else producing top 100 type talents from picks where those guys aren't supposed to be coming from. We're talking to Kylie McDaniel here on 101 ESPN. Kylie, I mentioned this stat the other day, but if you look at players at Jordan Walker's age, 20 years old down in double A, that have a 300 batting average and a 500 slugging percentage, there's only three of them in the last 15 years that have put up those numbers at as young of an age as Jordan Walker is right now. It's it's Walker as being one of them. Mike Trout being another, and then Oscar Tavares is the third. I know we've talked to you about what Jordan Walker projects to be in the past but given what he's produced so far this season uh, what are you now anticipating that this guy can ultimately be 
Yeah, I mean, the only like limitation keeping him from being in the conversation for will he be the number one prospect in baseball when he's in AAA is does he get called up before he gets to sort of hang out in AAA for a little while and like who, you know, who graduates ahead of him and things like that. And the fact that he is a decent defensive third baseman. And so being a you know, right hit, right throw, not, you know, not an up-the-middle guy, most of the guys at the very top of those lists are you know, Francisco Alvarez of the Mets, catcher, Corbin Carroll with uh, the D-backs, um, center fielder, Gunnar Henderson, shortstop, slash, third base, Anthony Volpe, shortstop. Like, those are the guys that tend to be up there just because the upside is so much higher when you're playing that position. So that holds him down a little bit. But the fact that he could hit 270 with an above-average rock rate and 30 to 40 homers, like, the guys don't look like that at this age at this level. So you're not like – you're not making it unfair by saying he kind of looks like these sorts of guys statistically by his performance. He also kind of looks like those guys physically in terms of being that elite, being a top 10 prospect in baseball when he's not even at triple a yet, which is like pretty rare. So like he is in that rare of a company. It's just a question of exactly how much upside is there. What do you make of his buddy, Jordan Walker's buddy as well, Mason Wynn? Wynn has also been in a lot of conversations recently. Justin Turner criticizing him for throwing 100 mile, miles per hour. What do you think of Mason Wynn and just his upside as well? I, I was just going to mention him because I believe he's also 20 in AA yeah. and putting up some numbers. And he does have that dynamic up the middle, sort of twitchy plus tools more than just sort of hitting power. Uh, I think his power probably plays more like 20, maybe 25 homers in his best season. Uh, but it is rare bat speed. It's like a 95 to 98 mile hour fastball on the mound and like a knockout curveball. Like he's not a pitcher, but like he's one of those guys that is so good that if they want him to throw like an inning every week or two in the big leagues, like he is that good that he wouldn't just be a mop up guy coming in to eat some innings. He would be coming in and being good. Uh, I don't, I mean, with Otani, you never know if those things are possible. But to give you an idea, like this thing he's second best at he is good enough to be like an eighth or ninth inning reliever, <laughs> but like no one's really been taking that seriously. Um, but yeah, I think he's a guy that could hit, you know, 260, 270. He's probably always going to swing a good bit. So it's not going to be a ton of walks. And the power, like I said, is like anywhere from 15 to 25 homers, depending on exactly how his swing sort of settles. But it is like a twitchy standout runner, defender, thrower. It's like elite, elite at that level, which gives you a lot of margin for error. Hey, Kylie, I've been really fascinated by the philosophy that the Braves have had this year, bringing up multiple players straight from double A. Michael Harris did it earlier in the season to, I mean, really impressive success right away. And then they decided to do it again, right? They have a couple of injuries on the middle infield and you bring up a middle infielder. And so far, he's been tremendous with Grissom uh, performing at a high level. Is this something that you think other teams can follow or was this very unique to these individual players that we saw making this jump with Harris and Grissom to the major league level? I mean, between this and the big league development of like Austin Riley, uh, the Braves are on like an almost unprecedented heater that just every guy they call <laughs> up is a dude like Kyle Wright was decent and then bad and then stuck in AAA for a full year. And now he's like a mid rotation starter. Um, they've had a couple guys not work out and they've generally traded those guys uh, like Tucker Davidson or Bryce Wilson or whoever it might be. So like, I don't think they can keep this up because no player development group is this good, but I will say the thing that has changed from the last like 15 years to the last couple years is the metrics that are available to these teams to tell how good a guy is in double a in terms of like, are they, what is their swing decisions based on what the big league zone is, but in double a against double a pitchers, and then what is, their, what is their contact rate in different parts of the zone? What's their exit velo? What's their average exit velo? How often are they hitting it at optimal launch angles? Like, this stuff has been available for long enough now. The teams have confidence in it. And so if you see a guy double A 
that's hitting all these markers. Like I know when I was working for a team like five years ago, we had certain things that predicted power based on these numbers that you see with StatCast that only the teams have at the minor league level. It'd be like 30, 40 balls in play. We would know. That's how good he was for those 30, 40 balls in play, which, you know, could be two weeks to four weeks, depending on how often he's putting the ball in play. So, like, sometimes guys can get to double A and be so much better than everyone else, so much better than the surface stats that we get to see in the public, that they can feel confident doing that. Whereas in the olden days, it would just sort of be like, well, he's hitting 260 with three homers, but, like, I don't know. Let's let him just sit at triple A for a little bit. It was just a little more of a gut feel situation. And now it's whatever you might be worried about. You can go back and look at it immediately in video and in data. And so I think a lot of the teams that are a little more progressive in the way that they handle this, like the Braves are, they feel confidence to do stuff that's seemingly bold, but it's not as bold when you have that data. With that in the back of your mind, should it come as a surprise to Cardinals fans if Jordan Walker starts the major league season next year with the big league club? No, because now the incentives are there to call these guys up uh, opening day. And I think we've seen with what the Orioles did with Gunnar Henderson, they would have, you know, in the previous CBA, they would have absolutely waited until 10 games into next year because that's what the, that's what the rules incentivize them to do. And now getting him up on opening day, uh, you get extra draft picks. You think he's going to be a stud, which like obviously everybody thinks he's going to be a stud. And the reason Orioles called up Gunnar Henderson is he's now going to get just enough service time that he'll still be rookie of the year eligible next year. He'll be prospect list eligible. So they basically get like a little trial run here during their playoff run, and then they still get all the stuff from calling him up next year, and he would have gotten a full year of service. So like the, what's worked out with the CBA is there's now reason to do what the Orioles are doing with Gunnar Henderson. They're incentivized to do that when you're competing. So I think the incentives are there to call up Jordan Walker if he's having a good spring training, all the time here that seems to be right. Uh, the incentives are to have him up on opening day. The question really with like him and Gorman, Brendan Donovan, Arenado, Goldschmidt, it's like all the best guys have played two positions. <laughs> if you throw in DH, there's like three spots to put them all. So like you basically have to fit these uh, you know square pegs into round holes. Kylie McDaniels, our guest for another couple of minutes as he is joining us live from the golf course here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Kylie, I did want to ask you about one other prospect that didn't make your list. I, I don't believe in your core rankings, but Tinkens is 20 years old. He is dominating right now. Now he's doing so in Palm Beach. So he's pretty far away right now, technically from the majors, but he's thrown 48 innings this year and he struck out 77 batters. He throws like 96 plus. He's got a wicked cur- Like what? What do you make of Tink Hintz? And he is now seemingly flying up all of these prospect lists. Yeah, he's comfortably in the top 100. He was one of the guys where, because of the timing, I don't think because he's only thrown, what, like 58 innings in pro yeah. ball so far. And they want to develop him as, as a starter. Like, I think he'll be in double-A, triple-A by the end of 2024, which is like the, the end of my ranking. So all the high school guys taken in the most recent draft or guys that haven't played a full season in low-A, I generally just threw them out because it's like, well, they might come up and be decent or get called up at the end of the season. That is like the, the end of that window. I don't think you can expect them to be good, which is kind of the, the line that I set. Uh, but I, I think my – I haven't published this far. I published the top 50 uh, about a month ago. He would be probably like 75 on a top 100, which is right where Gordon Graceffo, Alec Burleson, Hence, and there might be one other guy. They're all in that area. Um, so, yeah, he's really good. And, like, the concern is hasn't thrown a lot uh, over the offseason. I wrote that the Cardinals told me, like, they basically wanted to monitor the workload, not overdo it. He was a bit of a late bloomer. Athlete with a really silky smooth arm, but just hadn't had a lot of innings. So he's just raw, but has all the components for command, the thing you'd be worried about, but also just hasn't racked up innings. You can't expect him to be a mid-rotation starter because he can't throw that many innings uh, in the short term. But as you're saying, it's like four pitches. It's above average to plus with starter command, really good arm action, really good athlete, throwing strikes. It's all the stuff is shaped well for swings and misses. Like this guy could be 
could be when he's in double-A, triple-A, one of the top five pitching prospects in baseball. Like he's tracking like that right now. It's just moving a little more slowly than like the guys that are thrown 100 in high school. Those guys are a little further along at the same age than he is. Kylie, final question for you. At the big league level, just projecting for the rest of this season, I know you said technically your season is basically over at this point in time, but we're in the stretch run now for Major League Baseball, and the Cardinals have taken off ever since the trade deadline. They're now six and a half games ahead of the Brewers. When you look at them and you compare them to the Braves, the Mets, and the Dodgers, do you put them in that same category, or do you still think that they are a tier below those other three legitimate contenders in the NL? I think they're like a half step behind, but the way that the sort of luck and short um, samples and the way that the playoff works, I wouldn't look at them as any lower odds. I just think they're going to come in with over a full season, not quite the same win total, not quite the same seeding, maybe like one star player short if you like line them up with some of these other teams. Maybe the depth isn't quite as good, like a little bit behind, but in terms of the way the baseball playoffs work, that's, that's essentially nothing. There's almost no difference there. And does Jack Flaherty make up that difference if he comes back and is Jack Flaherty again? There's certainly some variables like that. Like for a while, it was like, oh, if San Diego can get Fernando Tatis Jr. back, which obviously won't happen, but they had that hanging around out there. And then they added Soto, so like that's where they really kind of toasted the town. And it's like, well, the Dodgers have so much depth, and then all of a sudden everybody gets hurt, and all of a sudden they don't have that much depth. So there's still a lot of variables floating around, but they are certainly in that conversation. He's Kylie McDaniel. Find his work over at ESPN.com. Be sure to follow him on Twitter as well. He's at Kylie MCD. Kylie, we always appreciate the time, man. Thanks for stepping away from the golf course for a little bit for us. We wish you all the best. We'll talk with you again soon. Yeah, and keep me here on the 16th tee box in your thoughts and prayers. I have not been hitting them straight today. I will do your best, man. We wish you all the best of luck. That's Kylie McDaniel here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate his time here on the show. That stuff about Team Kent is really interesting. I mean, we've talked so much about Matthew Libertor, Michael McGreevy, Gordon Graceffo, and then you look at the position player side as well with whether it be Alec Burleson, who's knocking at the door right now, and Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn are very close the guy that probably gets overlooked more than he should is Tink Hintz because he is seemingly so far away. But the numbers that he's putting up right now down in low A ball are just absolutely absurd. He's striking out 15 batters per nine innings. I mean, it's it's insane what he's doing down there. Yeah, I we mentioned he mentioned Graceffo briefly, and we heard them talking about the Cardinals potentially skipping him through double or from double-A up to the majors. I don't think the Cardinals would do it, but when he was talking about that, one guy that I kind of was like, I wonder if they would consider it, and again, I don't think they will because of what he said of building him up as a starter, would be Tink Hintz because of his stuff, how electric he's been in that low-A ball. And and you may say, well, that's a lot of levels to jump. Jordan Hicks did it, and Jordan Hicks didn't even have as good a number when he was at that level. They saw his stuff. They saw him throwing 100 miles an hour, and they went, you know, that's a weapon out of our bullpen. I, I think it's worth considering. Would they consider that as a possibility? Again, I don't think they will. But it's a guy that I'm going to keep an eye on. If he pitches in spring training, if he looks really good, would it shock you 100% if he made the roster as like a reliever? No. It no. would surprise me if he was up here that early. But like if you got to July or August and they were in need of a reliever again and they needed somebody that could come into the 6th, 7th, 8th inning and be that bridge guy for them, kind of similar to the conversations this year with Graceffo at that point in time, I could see those starting to pop up where it's like, hey, Graceffo, or excuse me, uh, Tink Hintz is in high A, or at the time maybe even double A, and he looks really good, and he's striking a bunch of dudes out. Could he be a helpful piece for this bullpen? I could see that, but it would surprise me if he made the opening day roster. Well, sometimes, you know, to your point, Tanner, there's a lot of guys in spring training that really just come out and surprise you, especially what they're able to accomplish and work on during the offseason. There is a lot of times where that narrative changes, especially with him already knocking on the door. That could be 
how he performs and how he looks in spring training could be a big difference maker for him. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to play games of one's got to go. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service X line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. But coming up next, I thought it was interesting what he said about the Cardinals versus the other top contenders in the National League. Basically, hey, one thing could go wrong and the Cardinals are right there with them. Is that one thing happening right now to the Dodgers? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I really believe in my heart, right, that the Braves, Mets, Cardinals, Dodgers, I'm not sure about the Padres and Phillies, but I think those four teams, any one of the four can win the World Series. Now, I will say this. Dodgers have the best team in baseball, but their bullpen's being exposed right now, and that's that's an issue. It may not be an issue a month from now, right? Because they might be able to put, you know, the way Kershaw threw last night, they might be able to put Dustin May in the bullpen. That's a weakness that could show up in a short series. That was Jim Bowden on with the morning show earlier today. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Luke Bryan next Friday night. So stay tuned for that. And if you missed Jim Bowden's appearance on with the morning show, check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com or the free 101 ESPN app, all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. It's been interesting to see over the last few days, the Mets and the Dodgers just played one of the more anticipated series of the season. And the Mets ended up winning two out of those three games which showed if nothing else that the Dodgers are human and despite the fact that they just went through one of the best 50 game stretches in baseball history uh, they can still lose even to a team like the Mets and when you look at the way that the Cardinals compare against these teams you're going to need them to break down somewhere don't have to be terrible but you need something to fall back to the pack a bit here's the question for you guys and alongside Brooke Grimsley and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kiley Is the Dodgers bullpen going to be that thing? Is their pitching staff, because of all the injuries, potentially going to be the thing that we look at going into October and we say, man, I I love that team. They are loaded everywhere, but the injuries have just gotten the best of them. And I'm not sure that the team that they are now is the same team that they were earlier in the season. Is that going to be possible, Brooke, to open the door for a team like the Cardinals? Well, look, I I thought it was pretty eye-opening that the Mets were able to take two out of three against the Dodgers because that's something that you don't really expect. Look, the Mets are really good right now. There's a lot that you like to see from there. You have Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom. You know, you even have Edwin Diaz and his little trumpet thing that he has going on, which is exciting to see as well. That's been also one of my favorite side stories, by the way, in baseball is seeing that whole trumpet and just seeing the fans get involved with it. That's fun to see. But I just think in some ways, maybe people, is there a little bit of a Dodgers fatigue because they are really good. They're banged up right now. So of course, it's not surprising that the Mets are able to take advantage of that. But the Dodgers are still really good and they do have a lot of depth. I think they're just banged up for now. And it's not something that is all is what is going to dictate how they're going to go in this postseason. Yeah, I, I will say this as much as they're dealing with the injuries. If if you have a bad bolt, then I think you don't stand a chance in the playoffs. And, and if that's a major concern for the Dodgers, then yeah, I think you're able to beat them. I, I kind of agree. I think the Cardinals are in that top four, but I think they're that fourth team that needs some break to go their way. Like the kind of what the Braves had last year. Now, granted, I didn't think the Braves were in that 
anywhere near that top conversation. But they had all the breaks go their way. I mean, the Dodgers, Muncy gets hurt. I think he broke his wrist, I think it was, or had a wrist surgery right before the playoffs started. And he wasn't the Max Muncy you're seeing this year. He was Max Muncy, like, MVP caliber guy last year. And then they had their pitching break where Scherzer basically had to start every game. And it broke down, and the Braves are able to win. And then they go on, and they can compete with the Houston Astros at that level for the World Series. So I do think the Cardinals do have to have breaks go their way in terms of maybe it is – Maybe De- I don't want to wish injure anybody, but like maybe it is DeGrom kind of breaks down and starts dealing with something that's bothering him. And then you have a shot maybe against the Mets because the rotation is so good. Or maybe Pete Alonso starts dealing with something. But I, I, I'm not sure the Cardinals can take uh, take down those top three. Uh, Atlanta, we saw that. They can match up with them. I'm not sure they can beat the Mets or the Dodgers unless a break goes their way. I, I think that's probably right, and I think that's fair, and I think that the Cardinals probably internally would agree with what you're saying there. Like, they they know we're not the same team as the Dodgers, and that's okay. We didn't expect to be coming into this season. But, man, you look at their injury list right now. It's crazy the number of pitchers that are on their IL. They've got 10 different guys that are currently on the injured list at one variety, either the 60 or the 15-day IL. Most of them are on the 60-day injured list like you look Danny Duffy not coming back this year uh Daniel Hudson Jimmy Nelson Blake Trinan all on the 60-day IL you've got Walker Bueller who's out for the rest of the season we don't really know what the status is going to be for Tony Gonsolin Gratterall is a guy who he came into the playoffs last year was like holy bleep how do people get hits off of this guy and then now he also is on the injured list as well Almonte on the injured list it seems like it just never ends for them. There's just conti- consistently guys that are going on the IL and eventually there becomes too many players to be able to replace. I don't know if we're at that place right now. Maybe it takes one more injury for that dam to break. But when you get into the playoffs and your starter and there will be moments when this happened goes five innings instead of seven and now you've got to get into those middle innings and you've got to throw a guy that you weren't anticipate having you weren't anticipating having to go throw out there the Dodgers are more vulnerable than I think we give them credit for because they're a 90 win team 130 games into the season they're outstanding I'm not trying to take away anything of what the Dodgers have already accomplished but projecting forward I don't think this is the gauntlet of a team that we expected them to be at this point in the season because these injuries have started to add up now Tanner I know speaking of the bullpen you are a little bit concerned about another bullpen that might be an issue for a team and it's the one that's here in St. Louis yeah because what I said earlier I look I if you don't have a good bullpen I don't think you can go on to win the World Series because the playoffs are such a bullpen game and that's where you get into that conversation, what you're saying is that's where you have to rely on a starter to go seven innings. You're probably mm. not going to get that in the playoffs. And for me, the Cardinals, they have that eighth, ninth spot locked up. You know Gallegos is the eighth inning, or in some cases Helsley is, depending on the scenario. But you also got Helsley as your closer. You know you've got those two guys. They need to find that middle inning relief that we're talking about. I, I'm not sure the Cardinals think Palante's that that guy. They threw him out there for three innings uh, the other night. We haven't really seen him in a one-inning high situation uh, since early in the year when he was in the bullpen. Uh, we know Cabrera's not the guy who got optioned down to Memphis. Is Jojo Romero that guy? He's now the top guy that's on the left-handed side in this bullpen. Maybe he is, but I've only seen five innings, so I don't know what to truly think of Jojo Romero yet. And it's a guy that spent most of the year down in the minor leagues with the Philadelphia Phillies organization. And then they're also going to try and experiment with Hicks and potentially Uh, maybe Stratton ends up getting into higher leverage situations I just don't think they have solidified what the middle part of this bullpen looks like and I've said it before and I'll say it again to me you have to have four high leverage relievers once you get into the playoffs and right now I trust two of the guys that the Cardinals have the other two I'm waiting to see (laughs) if if they have them or not And, and that's coming from a guy who loves to put everybody in the circle of trust I don't know who those guys are yet and and I think 
you're going to figure it out in September. If you see Hicks kind of take that sixth bridge, sixth inning bridge roll, and maybe Romero takes it from the left side, okay, then I'm going to feel really good about this team going to the playoffs. But if we kind of continue to scuffle through September, we go, nah, maybe it's him, maybe it's this guy. Oh, we'll try this guy. Sorry, you're going to be knocked out pretty early, in my opinion. 65780 is your comfort service X line from the 720. Guys, the Cardinals have a lot of options. They just don't have guys for the innings before the 8th and the ninth. So the Cardinals have a lot of bad options. <laughs> is that what that's trying to indicate? I think that they've got enough options to where they'll be able to figure out these roles by the playoffs. But over the next month, and we've said this a few different times now, Tanner, the the biggest question that I have for Ali Marmol are, are twofold. I think he's got to figure out what to do with Yachty in late game situations and whether or not it is right to have him hitting for himself in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning when you've got a potential high leverage spot coming up at the plate. That's one question that I'm very curious to see what that ends up developing over the next month or so. The other one is just this bullpen thing. Guy goes is the eighth. You've got Helsley in the ninth. You feel great about those two spots. What else is there? Who else is going to fit, fit into those roles? Can Palante be a high leverage guy for you? Can Jordan Hicks be somebody that can go? Can he give you just one solid inning? Is he somebody that you expect to get two out of? What are you doing with Jojo Romero? Is he a lefty only guy? Can he get righties out consistently? Those are the biggest things that they've got to find out over the next 30 days or so. And by the time we get to the playoffs, I do think they'll have enough out of those players. They've got enough options right now that I think they'll end up being all right. How would you feel, too, with obviously we've been talking to about the starting rotation and how things are going to shift around and change with that? Do you see that factoring into how that will also affect the bullpen and maybe moving guys around with that? Yeah, I think Dakota Hudson is going to be a guy that they end up using out of the bullpen this year. In the playoffs or just in general? I think that's that's what we find out in the next month. Once he's removed from the rotation, I think him and Jake Woodford are battling for one spot in the bullpen. As a long reliever, go out there and it's kind of different roles, but... They serve the same purpose. Like Dakota Hudson's going to go out there and get you ground balls. Jake Woodford, a little bit more swing and miss stuff. Maybe he can go out there and get a couple of strikeouts for you, but they're both guys that you want to come in and give you two to three innings. So I think they're battling right now for one roster spot. I think they're both battling for that spot, and I'll throw in another name into that spot, but it's going to be tougher to compare, is Quintana. Is Quintana a guy that you have in your bullpen in the playoffs? Because we all agree in this room, he's probably, unless Flaherty gets hurt again, he's not in your playoff starting rotation. So can he be a guy that can contribute out of the bullpen? And another name we haven't even talked about, and he's not going to come back as a starter, so it's no question if he comes back, he's in the bullpen. It's Steven Matz. I think he could become that one of those high-leverage guys because we've seen him throw with velocity. It's just a matter of can he get back in time? When's he going on? A, I would assume you try to get him on just a quick rehab assignment. Can he get him back up here looking like the match you saw right on the day that he got hurt where he was throwing with high velocity, looked like the guy you signed to that contract in the offseason? If you get him and then one other piece to click, there's your four high-leverage relievers in my opinion. With Brooke Grimsley and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll hit the rewind in about 15 minutes. Next, though, we're going to play games of, of one's got to go. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is BK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points, and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN.
count that that big bang. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line for one's got to go. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. Brooke, I think this fits right into your wheelhouse here. One's got to go top of the second tier in the SEC East. South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, or Missouri. Which one's got to go? South Carolina. Right? No? I think that's probably Missouri. right. But for Mizzou, like, I would get rid of Florida. You're, you're trying to put me in a tough spot here. I see what's going on, because what am I going I to do say? This. This, this is on the audience. <laughs> they were the ones that took this I, in. Because I see the setup here, and I'm just going to say South Carolina. That's totally what I'm going with. I'm going to say Missouri. Oh. Rival of Illinois. Get them out of there. You see, everybody, Tanner said it. I didn't say it. If Mizzou (laughs) went, you know where they're going, right? (laughs) To be closer to Illinois in the Big Ten. Exactly. I think it's Florida. So I don't know if you guys have been to to Gainesville before. It is not the trip I was anticipating. I enjoyed going down there. There are some cool bars. It's warm outside, which is always great in the football season time because it's very cold here. I didn't really enjoy going to their stadium. It was not the same experience that I was anticipating. Knoxville's unbelievable, and going to that stadium was unlike anything I've ever experienced before. South Carolina looks incredible to go to a game. I think if I had to get rid of one of these schools, it would actually probably be Florida, although obviously the SEC would never do that. You didn't like the swamp? It's just okay. It was just okay. In the press box, it was cool because it's open air. And mm. I, obviously that's always preferred, but just stand it, it wasn't a great fan experience. Just gonna be honest. Fun. No, I mean, I, I love Tennessee. <laughs> Tennessee was 100,000 people in the stands, despite the fact that that was in the Derek Dooley era. And oh, God. <laughs> things were not going well. They fired him like three weeks later, but they still filled that stadium. All right. One's got to go potential NLCS opponents for the Cardinals. So you get rid of the team that you would most not want to have to play for the Cardinals. The Braves, the Mets, the Dodgers, or the Phillies. Which one would you get rid of from the list? And then the other three are still possible. I wouldn't want to go against the Dodgers still. I know that we talked about the health of the rotation and bullpen issues and all that stuff being concerned, but still, they they have such an elite and, le- and lethal offense. I don't know if I'd want to go up against that. The Dodgers don't scare me as much and that's the weird Braves. To say. I've got no interest in playing that team again. Really? I'm out. Yep. Oh, really? Spencer Strider. He took two that three. lineup. Mm-mm. Nope. I'm good. I'm good. Don't need to see that. Do you remember watching the last two games against Spencer Strider? Didn't go particularly well. I don't need to see that again. Fair. I don't want to see DeGrom and Scherzer though. Like I, I, I lean towards Too the sure. Mets. I, I think the Mets are the team I don't want to play because I really like that lineup. I love the top of that rotation and then I still like having Bassett that's in the mix there. Uh, I almost said Edwin Jackson, not Edwin Jackson. Uh, Tylon Walker's the other one. Diaz is another guy that's in their bullpen. So I would much rather not face the Mets. I think that's the team I would get rid of. Especially Max Scherzer against oh, the yeah. Cardinals is just absolutely terrifying. Yeah. That's, hey, you can't hit Strider. You definitely ain't touching DeGrom. Those would be my top two teams. I don't want to see the Mets or the Braves. And then I would have the Dodgers third on that list. And I know that sounds weird because the Dodgers are the team that leads all of baseball and run scored and has allowed the fewest runs on the season, which is a wild combination to have, but it would be third on that list. Maybe I just have like a little bit of PTSD from last year. I don't know. (laughs) It's, it's very much deserved. Uh, One's got to go furniture edition, a couch or recliner coffee table or TV stand. Which one's got to go couch, recliner, coffee table, or TV stand. I guess TV stand, honestly, because I feel like at least in, 
my home, I mean, we put it on top of like the fireplace mantle. Yeah. So that's why I'm trying to like Easy cheat to the system. I need a coffee table. I like recliners. I thought you are putting your TV on the ground. <laughs> no. <laughs> or you like come to my house and it's just like Sitting a college dorm room. <laughs> yeah, you've got a mattress that's on the ground over here and you've got the TV that's on the ground over there on a box, a cardboard box that serves as your... TV See, stand. I like I like the TV on the TV stand. Gotta have the coffee table. I would get rid of the recliner. I think that's what I would get rid of too. Yeah, I, I gotta keep the couch because the TV on naps kill on on Do weekdays. Do you not like relaxing in oh, a recliner I, with no, the couch? I, sometimes you have to share it with other people, like especially with a spouse or dog. <laughs> no, lay down. Take but my that's nap. even better because then you're just sitting back, relaxing in the recliner. It's so I, nice. I, I feel like I'm going to fall over in a recliner, so that's why the recliner's got to go. How many, I can't tell you how many times I've like pushed it back and then felt like I'm going to fall head over tea kettle, so get that out of here. How Six, far back are you reclining? Apparently too far. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is clearly too far. Uh, one's got to go liquor or beer edition. Whiskey, beer, rum, or vodka? Brooke, which one's got to go? Whiskey, beer, rum, or vodka? Whiskey. I'm not, I, I can't do brown liquors at all. Um... That's you'd just, rather have rum no. than whiskey. Yeah, I would. If asked yeah. between the two. It kind of a spice to it. Or sweetness. Yeah, tomato. tomato. It is very sweet. Um, I would get rid of vodka. I, I like whiskey. I actually like rum a little bit better than whiskey. And then I, I, I like to drink like craft beer, so I can't get rid of that. I Get vodka out of here. Yeah, I can't do vodka. I'm out. I, I'm like, if you have vodka available and that's all we've got, fine, whatever. Uh, no yeah. problem. But. I'm good without it. I don't need that in my life. One's got to go. Their entire sports history will be removed when you get rid of this individual. Serena, Albert, Tiger, or Michael Jordan? Serena, Albert Pujols, Tiger Woods, or Michael Jordan? You get rid of their entire sports history when you remove them from the category. I don't like that question. Oh, their man. entire sports history. So they were what? Just a player, I or Michael they just Jordan say- and now LeBron James is the greatest of all time. We don't even have to have the you discussion. You would be that that's, guy. That's the one. That's that's my out on this one. Michael's got to go. I was going to pick Michael as well, just because I I couldn't imagine the history with without the others that you listed. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that was a, I wasn't around for Michael, but. I guess it would be him because of what Brooks yeah, think said. Think about all of the players yeah. now that we get to look back on more fondly. Like Charles Oakley's looking back on more fondly. We, I think Charles Barkley probably has a title <laughs> if you end up getting rid of Michael. <laughs> there are so many people that were blocked by him. Yeah, that's fair. I think you get rid of Michael here because like Brooks said, then, you, then we're probably, we may not even be talking about like golf or tennis at the same level that we do now. So yeah, Michael's got to get out of here. With Brooke Grimsley and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario Rewind, and we'll give you a chance to win a free pair of tickets to see Luke Bryan next Friday night at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. That's all coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And one, and you can tell us the amount of money that Kellogg's is offering if you are willing to eat their cereal for the next five weeks for dinner, 
You are texture number 101 at 65780. That's the Air Comfort Service text line. You can tell us the dollar figure that they are offering for that. You are potentially going to be the winner of a pair of tickets to see Luke Bryan next Friday night, September 9th at Hollywood Casino, Casino Amphitheater. Tickets on sale now. Text in at 65780 for your chance to win. You can also get bonus chances over on the 101 ESPN mobile app as well. And speaking of the app, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out over there at 101ESPN.com or the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Brooke, let's finish where we started the show today, and that's with Mizzou football. They get their first win of the season last night against Louisiana Tech. I don't want to make more of this than there needs to be made. It's Louisiana Tech. I am fully aware you don't have to text in. I know Louisiana Tech is not a very good football team. I was also highly impressed with the way that Mizzou played last night. The defense did something that I didn't know that they were capable of. They gave up 22 carries for just 11 yards. That's a half a yard per carry. They could not have done that a year ago. There was no chance that that was happening. I thought Brady Cook was better than what they had at quarterback last year. Luther Burden looked like, on offense at least, the best player on the field every time that he touched the football. Those are the types of things that I wanted to see in a game against Louisiana Tech. Now, next week's the real test, but I thought last night, if that if you had any questions about the team, they seemingly answered all of them in the right way last night. Well, and that's the thing. You know, of course, seeing Louisiana Tech, you're like, okay, let's not get too excited. But still, even looking back last season, there were some games that you thought that Mizzou was going to blow the socks off this team, and it was a little too close for comfort. So this was a huge improvement for me, I believe, just seeing this and also for the Eli Drinkwitz era. This is year three. A lot of pressure going into this one. You have a five-star recruit in Luther Burton. Everybody wants him across the country. How are you going to utilize him? And he really did utilize him, and he is a superstar. And I can just think moving forward, you can use that as a huge recruiting tool as, look, I'm I'm not somebody who's going to give you empty promises. Look what I did with Luther Burden here. I actually utilized him and I made him basically a superstar. You see him on TV advertisements. <laughs> you see him on chips. He's everywhere. And that's something that is going to really benefit Mizzou in the long run. And also Luther Burden is just a superstar. I mean, an ab- absolute superstar. The plays that he's able to make, the way that he is able to move his feet, his footwork is just electric. You couple that with Brady Cook, who actually also is pretty good on the ground as well it's a really lethal duo i feel like and they'll just get even more comfortable with each other as well yeah i I was really impressed with them last night i mean to your point i mean bk set me up with low expectations for the defense last night because it's a lot of new guys a lot of transfers that were coming in and because they were historically bad last year i didn't want to say it but i'm glad you did but the first six games of the year it was the worst defense i've ever seen didn't they almost lose to central michigan last year too no it was close they they did not play well they gave up like 200 yards on the ground but so there's an easy easy upgrade from last year's season opener. And Luther Burton, yeah, I mean, he's clearly the star on that team, and you saw how they're going to utilize him in the offense. I really liked what they did, used him out of the Wildcat, going quick, get the ball into his hands, and just you saw the play in the red zone where you just dump it to him, and you can make four guys miss. That's the athleticism of him. And I know his stats didn't stand out. I was actually impressed with Brady Cook. The way he was able Agreed. to maneuver the pocket, you saw him run, I think he had a 20-yard rushing touchdown, too, where he gets away and is able to take advantage with his legs. I is he going to be one of the top quarterbacks in the SEC? Probably not, but it was an encouraging sign to see how he played in the week one matchup. Also, like, I think sometimes people are like, hey, everybody's got these great quarterbacks. Man, there's like 10 really good college quarterbacks around yeah. the country. And most of the rest of them are like somewhere in the middle. 
And then there's like another 30 that you just want no part of starting for your team. And Mizzou right now feels like it's somewhere in the middle. Last year, I think you can make a strong argument. Connor Bazelak was in that latter category of this guy's not a legitimate oh, yeah, power five Indiana starter. Tonight. Let's go. Apparently, he didn't win their starting job, which oh, makes some sense given what we saw from him a year ago. He just couldn't move. Yeah. His arm's fine, but he would freak out when he would get under pressure, throw it up for grabs, and that would lead to some terrible turnovers. And what impressed the heck out of me, there was one play by Brady Cook last night that I absolutely loved to see. He had a free rusher coming from his left side. So he was turned towards him, but he recognized that there was a free rusher. He's able to spin out of the pressure, keep his eyes down the field, and then made a a throw to, I think it was Toski Dove, like 20 yards down the field for a first down. That is a play that would not have been possible last year. And now with Brady Cook as your starter, he's not perfect but it is definitely an improvement from what you previously had. Well, exactly. And look, the the biggest takeaway, too, with Cook with me is that he was able to make adjustments. I think everybody saw first quarter was a little shaky there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to complete some passes with Luther Burden. So I think people really locked in on that image. But the fact that he was able to adjust and I was pretty impressed, too, by some of Drinkwitz play calling. You mentioned there that dove play. If you looked especially too. All eyes were on Luther Burton, and it's like Dove was wide open there in mm-hmm. some of those certain situations. That's going to be huge for Mizzou moving forward, that they have so many offensive weapons that they can turn to. And we're not even talking about Pete, who also on the ground was, was pretty great. good as well. He's clearly their best running back. Uh, the fact that Schrader was getting more carries than him yesterday, that should be corrected going into next week against Kansas State. Before we get out of here... Tanner, any uh, predictions for Illini tonight against Indiana? It's now down to a one-point favorite in favor of Indiana, uh, which means that you would expect Illinois to be the better team because you do get a little bit of love for being the home team in this. Yeah, I I think Illinois wins tonight. Um, I... Anytime I told you this in the office, anytime Illinois is favored on a line or a line moves like this in favor of Illinois, take Illinois. The the other team they're playing must be pretty bad. I think Indiana is projected to be one of the worst teams in the Big Ten. I think they win tonight. I think it will probably be a slugfest. I think it's yes. going to be very low scoring. If I had to make a prediction, I'll be honest, like 17-7. Like, that's the kind of game I expect. Take the under. I would take Illinois on the points. So I, I think they start the year 2-0, and that's a good sign for this team. I, that basically, to me, guides them towards bowl eligibility because I think there's another handful of games they can win on the schedule, and it's a good sign for Brett Bielman in year two. I've got Illinois winning tonight 24-20. to Brooke, who do you have in this one, Illinois versus Indiana? I would, I would hope Illinois, right? <laughs> I, I feel crossed. like that's like the answer. Now, I do agree. I think it's going to be more of a little bit of a low-scoring affair. But I, Illinois, for sure. Have you seen the over-under for that game? What is it, 40, like 46? 46 and <laughs> yeah. a half. Yeah, that's, take the under. Take the under and take the Illini on the money line. Brooke, thanks for doing this today. This has been fantastic. We appreciate you, you hopping in. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Alex Ferrario will be back in with us on Monday. His seemingly never-ending vacation is finally coming to an end. So we're excited to have Alex back in with us on Monday at 11 a.m. Coming up next is the Fast Lane from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Peloton, let's go. This holiday with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home-trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.